Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Recording to logbook. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and I have an awesome guest with me today. He writes the video game newsletter, Retro XP, among many other newsletters. Uh, I have my buddy Mark Normandon with me. Mark, how are you? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm absolutely stoked to have you. I've been really excited to have you for a long time. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. And there's so much I want to talk about for the game that you picked. But before we get into anything like that, I do want to ask for the people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you, what do you do and what do you like? <laughs> Ooh, what do I like is um, it's probably easier to list off the stuff I don't enjoy. Uh, <laughs> part, of, part of the fun of uh, doing the retro XP newsletter is kind of just bouncing from genre to genre and also not sticking with things that are necessarily in English or that I'm familiar with. I really just kind of want to know what makes all kinds of video games tick. And then I want to talk about it. I, I've described it before as um, I just want, I get to get the bees out of my head and like put them on a page or put them in <laughs> someone else's head. So, I, you know, I'll bounce from things to thing. Big JRPG guy a lot of the time. Um, love a Metroidvania. Uh, mm. I am all over the place. I will, I'll, I'll, I will try basically anything. Um, although I have, no, I have no real love for live service games, so I guess I'm becoming old. Sure. I mean, I think that that is just most people don't like live service games and the people that do like <laughs> them, like them in spite of the format. Like even the people who defend games like uh, that Avengers game that came out a couple of years ago by Square Enix, they kind of like it in spite of the the, the live service take. The defenders of it don't <laughs> defend how it's structured. That's true. That's true. What was that? What was the first question? Oh, what do I what do I do? Because what do you do? Uh, yeah, I guess I answered part of that. Uh, so I have the the retro video game newsletter, uh, Retro XP. Um, where retro is a pretty, it's a pretty elastic term. I, I kind of keep things to like, are you 10 years old? Yes. So then you get things like I wrote about Gears of War at one point last year, and I had a bunch of people around my age being like, that's not retro. And I was <laughs> like, hey, check the release date. And they were like, oh my God, I, I'm so old, you know? And it's like, yeah, that came out in 2006 or whatever, like, clo- or 2005. I can't even re- remember. It's, um, but close to the Xbox 360 launch, it's like, that's two Xboxes ago. So like yeah, that, that, like that is to like now what the SNES was back then. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it maybe speaks to some of the way we see advancements in games these days that those don't feel retro, or maybe it's just a case of like the '90s. Those were ten years ago. Uh, I also do uh, less vital to this conversation, I guess. I do a labor newsletter that focuses on uh, sports, mostly baseball, and I uh, I freelance about video games for Pace Magazine a couple times a month too, which is nice gives me a place to write about shoot 'em ups a lot. I can't believe you asked me what I'm into and I didn't mention shoot 'em ups. I'm obsessed with those. See, there's too many things. Too many things. This is why we're talking about one game. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean like if anybody who's listened to more than one episode can attest that there's nothing that's necessarily off topic in this show. I talked to Tom about sports for like an hour before we actually talked about a link to the past. Huh. So who knows where the conversation will go. Yeah. So yeah, baseball's completely on topic. No community likes to gatekeep more than the gamers. And as a result of that, we do have to check your gaming credentials. Let's talk a bit about your gaming history. Like who or what got you into it? What is your current relationship with it? What was your relationship like with it throughout the years? So on and so forth. I feel like it never really stopped once it got going. It's probably just intensified. And um, there's there's no one in my house who's making me play less. So 
probably <laughs> just gonna keep just gonna keep going. Oh boy. Um <laughs> what got you into it then? Yeah. So the the start of things she's probably going over like to my cousin's house and they had um I remember they had a an NES and they had a Genesis. So that was pretty much where I used to play at first. At some point they they dug out their Atari they dug out their Atari and gave it to my parents, I think as a test run to see if like it would survive in my home and they, you know, and then Santa could bring a Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. I don't remember everything that was there, but uh, there was a choplifter. I remember choplifter and uh, for some, something for that people know the name of without being in their mid thirties is um, uh, Galaga. So I got started on the shoot 'em ups early with, with uh, Galaga. And yeah, then I, I had a super Nintendo that I got uh, for Christmas at some point, And uh, that's, I think after, you know, you'd only get a couple of games a year at that point for birthdays, holidays, things like that. And uh, I just play the hell out of them. And I knew everything about all of them. And I'd, I'd play again and again and again. So I remember Final Fantasy 2 um, probably wasn't the first RPG that I played, but it was one that I played again and again. And I, I got to the point with that where um, I could I could finish that game without fighting the random battles just like boss experience the whole time. So, you know, you get to the end of the game and like, my whole party was the level that like the last character you recruit is at in the main story when you get him um, playing the same thing so many times that you can pull stuff like that off just knowing all the tricks. But yeah, I, I think I was pretty, pretty heavy Nintendo guy through the years and I got a, a Genesis from a different cousin when they, I think they got a Saturn or they got married. I can't <laughs> remember which of those, it could have been both. Um, but I got their Genesis, so that that helped. Didn't really get into Sony and into, into the PlayStation scene until two. So a lot of my PlayStation original PlayStation games that I've played were on my PS2 or are like now. You know, uh, I got a real late start on that, and it had a huge library. So um, and now I, I kind of have everything. Like it, things opened up, and I was no longer like just a Nintendo and Sega kind of guy. And sure. You said when like it got started that you know it never stops. So you've kind of been with it like <laughs> conceptually since the Atari time, but technically, uh, you know, your first you know console that you were given the contemporary console, I guess, would have been the SNES. Am, yeah, am I, am I, yeah. I so I got the SNES like not in the first year of its release, um, but like maybe ninety two, whatever, whatever holiday season Super Mario All Stars came out. Okay, because I, I got that was one of the games that I got. Nice. So I'm not I'm not that old that I got an Atari like no, yeah. while that was active. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but two people have said like I had an Atari so far in the show. So like, don't don't disrespect them. I'm not disrespect. I'm just no, trying no. to <laughs> I'm trying to place the timeline here. Like, I think I got you know I got the SNES when I was like six or seven, oh, and yeah, everything yeah. after that was pretty pretty on target, except for the Genesis, which I got you know either for in the mid '90s because my cousin was married or bought a Saturn. Right, right. So I guess my question, uh, you know, since you've been been playing for generations upon generations of consoles now is one particular console stand out to you as like the best of all of them jesus christ um <laughs> that is that is tough um i don't know like it feels like a cop-out but god they're so good at different things sure like maybe you don't commit to a whole favorite but maybe like just shout out a couple <laughs> of consoles that seem to uh have robust libraries when you think about it i mean the ps2 library is basically unimpeachable because everything released for it and yeah. nothing released for everything else <laughs> hyperbole in both directions there but um uh libraries that stick out to me you know i'm a, I'm a sucker for I, th- I feel like the n64 library is very is very small uh but it has an extremely high batting average 
sure. sports, sports term. I feel similarly about uh, the GameCube when you yeah, think about it. Yeah, that's another one where um, there's space for people to get weird on it, I felt like, which helped. So it didn't do anything to sell games. But, you know, retrospectively looking back at it, it's like, oh, cool. I did a list uh, at RetroXP of the top 101 Nintendo games, which was either extremely well received or like resulted in people telling me I should kill myself. <laughs> depending. Game. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things. The people who were reading the whole list were like, okay, I get what he's doing. The rankings don't matter. It's the features. And then the people who just like Googled it and found a list would be like, I can't believe you put this here. You should die. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about the list positively shortly, but well, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, I think game, I think the GameCube had the most games, uh, like original release games mm-hmm. on the 101, which is pretty cool. You know, that's, that's good for a, a system that is considered a failure, essentially. Yeah, the thing was like it was like a commercial. It wasn't a big seller, but people who yeah. did have the GameCube got a lot of games for it. Mm-hmm. People who had the console weren't necessarily like starving the same way they were if you were like a Wii U owner. The SNES is amazing, but I do feel like it's kind of overrated because of the nostalgia thing we were just talking about a little mm-hmm. bit ago. However, if you can read Japanese and you have the full slate of the of the Super Nintendo library, that's a different story because as many games released in Japan, but not North America as released in North America alone. So there's really? like, yeah, there's like 1400 something super famic, uh, super famicom games, but there's like 700 something super Nintendo games. Jesus. Yeah. So when you like do that, it's like, Oh, okay. This is intense. Like this is massive. And you understand like why as good as the Genesis was in North America, it couldn't quite stay ahead, you know, and it, it couldn't compete in, Japan at all. You know, all of that was like Europe and Brazil and North America. Yeah, see, this, this is the thing. I'm, I'm kind of one of those people who like, I since I find so many weird gems that I like, I can talk positively about pretty much anything, any mm-hmm. any console. Uh, but those are a couple of the ones that um, I play the most. Xbox 360 is probably the modern one I spent the most time with for a while there. Um, but even, you know, even the Wii's got a, a deep, a deep library. Yeah, no, I did a lot of like looking at the Wii library because of <laughs> one of the forms that Metroid Prime comes in is on the Wii. And I like retrospectively, that library is pretty strong when you look at the uh, like considering like it was like one of the most successful consoles of all time. Like it, it's not unimaginable, but I do think that like during that generation, since all eyes were kind of on like the Xbox 360 is like the traditional yeah. console, people tend to underrate the Wii. Yeah, I mean, I probably have I probably have like 50, 60 Wii games still like sure. physical Wii games. And that's pretty good. It's way more than I have for like PS3 games, you know, and you would think looking back critically, like the the Wii got like walloped by the PS3 in terms of what games are on it, not in terms of sales. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, like the PlayStation 3 also was just a tremendous console and like people tend to forget that that actually ended up outselling the Xbox 360, but like it still wasn't putting Wii numbers on the board. Yeah, yeah. That, not that that's what we how we compare like the success of a console. We just said the GameCube and the Nintendo 64 had like <laughs> gems on them, even though they were kind of like, you know, going up against the PlayStation of, the, of their time. I had a moment a few days ago and I want you to hear me out on it because I'm not just talking about Wii games themselves when I say this, but is the Wii the best console the Nintendo that Nintendo ever ended up putting out? And hear me out on this, because mm-hmm. like a big part of this show is, you know, game preservation and accessing older titles. So you have the Wii and not only can it play Wii games, but you can also play GameCube games on it. Like it has like the slots for the memory card and it has like the inserts for the controllers. So you can play any GameCube game on it. No problem. In addition, 
you have the the virtual uh, console stuff at the time where you could actually purchase and play and own digitally at least classic games from not only like Nintendo consoles of old, but you know you had your TurboGrafx 16s and I think Genesis titles were even on there if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, like it seemed like it had like a pretty robust collection of classic games, and when you compare that to now and the the current Switch uh, library for classic games, isn't even quite on that level yet. <laughs> I don't know if it's bleak that the Wii could kind of be seen as like the the strongest library of all when you like compare it holistically, but I, I have that thought sometimes in my head. Yeah, I mean, it's not even, a, I don't even have to hear you out. You're speaking my language here. Um, I wrote something for Paste last year about how awful it is that we've switched from the virtual console model to the subscription services. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because you don't own any of this and it can be shut off at any time. Like it's terrible that the Wii shop is closed and unless you've previously downloaded something you can't you can't get it again mm-hmm. but and, and then you look at the switch and it's like it's cool that these games are here and that they have some like quality of life updates to them and like safe states and things like that some like basic emulation things but yeah you're, you're completely beholden to like what they can put on it and the, those channels go so long without any updates sometimes oh yeah sony's like game pass answer sounds like it's not very good for a lot of reasons and it's it's weird it's kind of a shame that the the company with like the smallest library of games to put on in microsoft is the one that's most concerned about backwards compatibility and making their older stuff available like easily you know like uh, tons of microsoft studios uh games are on game pass yeah but man wouldn't you rather the sony computer entertainment ones and the nintendo ones were accessed in that form like I just want to be able to buy things and have them and go to them when I want. I don't know. I've been writing a huge series on 3DS games because the eShop's closing down at the end of March. Yeah. And I don't know. I've done like six parts and I've got one or two more to come. And mm-hmm. it's it's wild, the wealth of things that are on there. And that virtual console is not even as robust as what the Wii had. And same with the Wii U. Like, it's a super impressive virtual console and it's nothing compared to what the Wii's had. So I would buy, you know, I'd buy the argument there that she gave there's just so much there and it's it's a system that got me into the turbo graphics you know it's not like i had one of those when i was a kid yeah and they had uh it had neo geo games on it too so those that was my first experience with neo geo games other than like maybe seeing a mvs machine in an arcade somewhere because <laughs> i just said i got one or two or three games a year other than renting i certainly didn't have a uh, a neo geo console at home where the cartridges themselves were like 250 dollars or whatever yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I hate harping on this conversation so much every single time, but it just like guts me like you're absolutely right that the subscription model is um, bullshit. And to your point about like the the Sony answer to uh, Game Pass is like it could be leveraging that library a lot better within that model alone, not to mention the fact that you cannot buy these games separately unless you bought it on the PlayStation 3 and they have to honor that purchase carrying over into the PlayStation 5 or whatever. Last last episode, like not last episode, a couple episodes ago, I talked with Jane about Tekken 2 and you can play Tekken 2 on the PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4 if you have like the premium plan, but you can't buy Tekken 2 on the PlayStation 4 or 5. It's it's wacko. And it's so weird that they're going closer to the Nintendo model of that instead of the Microsoft model of that where, yeah, they have Game Pass and that's a subscription service. But the appeal of that service is the fact that they are putting new games onto that pretty regularly and basically keeping the double a gaming space alive on like the PC and Xbox series. 
and then like PlayStation, like the leverage that it can have against that is like their classics game library. And they're just fumbling that like Nintendo is. And that's just disappointing. It's infuriating with Nintendo because they had the answer and they have lost it. It's extra frustrating with Sony because you think they would want to fill this vacuum, but they also have a CEO who says who came back from um, whatever that convention was and saw. Oh, what's the Sony racing game? Like the big one with the fancy cars that people lose their minds for Gran Turismo. Okay. Yeah. And he like was looking, you know, there, there was like this big Gran Turismo section of whatever this, this event was. And he's like looking at the original PlayStation one. And he's essentially like, these look like garbage. Why would anyone ever want to play these when the new ones exist? Mm. And it's just like, are you serious? Like, can you imagine Miyamoto walking in and like playing a Donkey Kong arcade cabinet and just being like, what the fuck is this? What was I thinking? <laughs> 1981 was such a stupid year Mm -hmm. no i mean like it's just like the whole like the product of gaming and not sort of like the art and history of it that's being Mm -hmm. respected and you know now i just have to hold everything to the super mario rpg standard of game preservation where the wii had super mario rpg on it you could buy it for eight dollars and that game was yours and now you play the switch and there is no super mario rpg you can't pay anything for it because there's no nobody's putting it on there in like a a purchase capacity or on the subscription model thing. Like it's the week we're talking, like they just put the new golden eye, not the new golden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just put golden eye <laughs> from the Nintendo 64 era on there. And that's just kind of a miracle because of how many hoops you have to jump through to get that onto uh, the Xbox and the Nintendo switch. It's not the kind of game that every single person wants to line up to play, but it is a tremendous part of gaming history and having access to it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm very much like an everything should be available everywhere. Always. Yeah, person. And I understand why it doesn't work that way from a business perspective, but we lose so much by not having these things available. I am finding new games all the time that completely kick ass. Just stuff that I've never played before that plenty of people who read me are like, I have never heard of this before, you know, but I think it sounds cool. You know, every time I do one of those, I expect someone to come up and be like, uh, everyone knows about that game. But instead, it's more like, oh, thank you for introducing me to this. Mm-hmm. Except no one has any way to play it because the way I end up finding a lot of them is redacted, redacted, redacted and playing <laughs> them on a redacted. It's just not easy enough for most people. So never mind having to like going around and finding things that are lost to history or close to it. So much might as well be lost to history. Like I'm not talking about in a, like a game preservation society way where, you know, they find the ROM or whatever, the dumps. If only a few people know something even existed in the first place. And then it just kind of vanishes. It's pretty sad. There's so many good games. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of games. Yeah. You mourn the things that people know about and have nostalgia for in a collective sense. And like, yeah, that's tough that that hasn't been carried over into new generations now that something is two or three generations away or more. But then there's also just like the, the hidden gems of the world, the stuff that people would have no way of knowing about unless like somebody who bought the game at the time of release had like a Mm -hmm. very specific attachment to it. And it's just, that's, that's also tremendously sad. Yeah. It's, it's part of the reason I think I really, uh, have like glommed onto the unofficial translation scene, uh, or the fan translation scene, depending on who you're talking to. I, I read this thing that said calling it fan translations makes it sound very amateurish when the people who are doing this are people who know how to do this programming professionally and know how to do localization work professionally. They're just doing it for free, like on the side. So calling it fan translation kind of like demeans what they're doing. Um, So now I call it unofficial translation. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I love that scene because there's so many 
there's so many games I never knew existed because it came out, you know, only in Japan or something and never got a release over here. So even like Konami or Namco or Sega or Nintendo, whoever kind of didn't do the work in the moment to ensure that this game got a wider release in the first place. So it's nice to see someone pick that up and kind of like shove something, even if it's in like only the form where someone like me who's looking for it and knows how to emulate and knows where to find these things and how to apply these patches and all that. Even if like only that subset of, of gamers is enjoying it, it's still nice to have it like come back into the spotlight in some way. Cause otherwise no one knows these things exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a kind of part of the reason why I do this series. It's about meaningful and memorable experiences, not like the best in a cultural sense, but like the best and favorites in a personal sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, like the games that people end up picking happen to line up with like stuff that is endured in like the collective mind for a while, but not, not everything I'm going to be doing in the future is going to be things that are like platinum sellers or whatever in the video game industry. People have like very specific emotional attachments to whatever kind of game, games that weren't critically respected, games that weren't commercially successful, just all kinds of things. And we, we see horror stories about like archiving disasters go on all the time, whether it's the library of Alexandria or just God, oh my God, the internet database, you know, just, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, digital media can make things safer, but can, it can also just be equally as dangerous if there's no backup of it in any way or just some sort of aggregation for it all. So much to consider, much to consider. <laughs> it's actually, it's not like this creates my own personal library of Alexandria for gaming or anything, but it's part of the reason that like, instead of just being satisfied with like emulating Saturn games uh, and emulating Dreamcast games. Like I have the original hardware and it has been soft modded so that I can play discs, which, you know, those also degrade, but so does, so do digital files, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's bit rot and everything. I don't know. It's uh, you gotta, you gotta make sure this stuff stays available and stays out there. Um, and it's wild how much of it is already lost, just gone and like cannot be re- retrieved. Yeah. You know, bleak anyway let's talk (laughs) let's talk about the future now what have you been playing lately Uh, let's see uh new game i've been playing uh i guess it won't be so new by the time this runs but uh i've been playing fire emblem engage okay um because i am a fire emblem nut what's your favorite fire emblem game overall before we talk about the current one well there's three that are pretty close together and they all do completely different things and this is the way my brain works i can't pick in one thing it's very hard um so there's three houses on the switch which I think is amazing. The like social aspects of it, the whole like tactical RPG high school thing is really cool. I like that it's basically impossible for everything to go like swimmingly the whole time. Like both terrible decisions and decision uh, decisions and actions will like be made and happen regardless of what path you're picking. Right. Um, it's just unavoidable tragedy kind of stuff. And like the game has some warts too, but I, it barely matters to me. Is genealogy of the Holy War. If we want to talk about games, Nintendo fucking punted on bringing over and really should have. That one is very combat focused. Uh, it's from it's a Super Famicom game from 1996. Uh, the series creator, he was still around at the time when this was made, and it's it's a um, very large scale. And it's so good. And this is like a 16 bit game. Like you think of when our like RPG mechanics really took off and became complicated and like layered and deep. And you kind of think of it as a more modern invention that things really started to like pack on the ideas and the complexity, but it's like, no, they did this in 1996. 
that get that game rules. And then Path of Radiance, the um, GameCube Fire Emblem with that brought in Ike. I think that is the most consistent narrative of all of them and has an exceptional cast, really like tight ideologically speaking. It's just like a pleasure to play. And it doesn't have like the level of social aspects and support aspects that something like Three Houses does, like the, the real modern games do. But it has enough of that with some pretty intense combat and uh, some high difficulty. It's like a real good midpoint between the Fire Emblem that was and the Fire Emblem that we have now. Sure. And that brings us to uh, Engage. And how do you feel about that so far? Man, the main character's hair is real stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the game's been fun so far. I'm, uh, I don't know, 15 hours in. I don't, I don't know how long it is, but I'm, I'm about 15 hours in. It's good. The, the story is a little, it's like not super pulling me in. It's getting better, but it's, the story's fine. I like a few of the characters quite a bit. Some of them are all right. The combat's real tight though. Uh, like as much as I love three houses, the, if, you could very easily unbalance the, the combat essentially by fighting on the side. So I just don't do that now when I play the game and it's like, okay, everything remains balanced and like is a challenge, you know? Um, if you do the extra like fighting missions that aren't like story side story fighting missions, you completely unbalance the game. And it's just a cakewalk. This seems to have um, to undone some of that and has more of a focus on, uh, on like the tactical bits, um, the weapon triangles back, which is nice. They've kind of brought back some of the, the older mechanics too. fire emblem games don't have the same mechanics from game to game. There's just kind of like this like pool of fire emblem mechanics that have been created over 30 plus years. And mm-hmm. they kind of intelligence systems just kind of picks and chooses and like sure. iterates on them or just brings back an old one. And so this is, this has got some cool stuff. I'm enjoying it so far. Sure. Anything else that you're playing? Uh, yeah, I'm playing burning ragers on the Sega Saturn. I probably have written about it by the time this publishes. Uh, Cause it's, it's, there's like four stages. It's pretty short. Uh, you are a, a futuristic firefighter in a world where the only the only problems that still exist are like man-made catastrophes. Um, mm. So robots taking over like an aquarium and flooding it, and robot fish and stuff like that. It's it's cool. It's a you know one of it's a Sonic team game. I want to make a game where you get to play as a hero where you don't kill people, so you rescue people. That's fun. I'm replaying Gears of War two, which is the opposite in terms of violence. <laughs> but man, that game holds up. I love Gears of War two. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, okay, so I played uh, the Gears of War games for the very first time, uh, basically my last week of college ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happened, like, keep in mind, I'm 26 years old, I'm turning 27 this year, like these, this, that trilogy came and went by me. So I'm playing these games in like 2018. And the first one's fine. And the third one is pretty good. But that middle one is just like, really good. Yeah. I like I like Gears of War 2 a lot, actually. And I didn't think I would have anything to say about those games because I'm not the most like, you know, Rudy Tootie, aim and shooty kind of gamer <laughs> in the world. But two's great. Two is, yeah, I have I like one. It's got some issues, you know, but it's like a good game and it still holds up real well. Three, like you said, is pretty good. I think it hits some emotional beats in a way that was surprising too. The new ones are they're good, but uh, <laughs> I am I have played so many goddamn hours of Gears of War 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and know exactly how it should feel to play a Gears game. I have so many issues with the game, the Gears games that weren't developed by Epic. I don't know if everyone can tell that things are off, but things are off. Things just don't feel quite right. They don't feel as satisfying to play. And they're still good, like I said, but uh, two is two's the high point. 
What a game. <laughs> Two is a platonic idea. Like three has like, like you said, it's mainly just like emotional payoff and you play a game. You're playing a game through that. Everything feels bigger. It does mm-hmm. definitely have big game syndrome, but two just is like, has the pacing. It has the mechanics. It's just like, it's just refinement on the first. And then like three is just kind of like, all right, now we got to wrap this thing up. And also Michael B. Jordan is here. <laughs> yeah. Three's got the same deal as like the uncharted three, which again, like I like that game too, but the reason I like it less than two is because they went to like, they pushed the sliders too far. Sure. To the like stuff is happening side, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, okay, how many, how many vehicles can Nathan Drake be on that explode? Like how many, the sinking ship, a sinking plane, this is happening. This is and gears three kind of has that sometimes where it's like, all right, we've like had the big danger climax so many times, but you know, it's still, it's still, it's still a good time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, mass effect three also had that same problem. Like even before the ending, I think the thing that was bugging me playing through three is just like, all right, it's doing the big, like we're ending the trilogy thing. And, everything feels a little off because of that, because it's just more like it's the, it's the, like you said, just turning the dials too far in a lot of directions. I got a soft spot for that game. I can't help myself. Yeah. No, I mean like, I didn't say it's a bad game at all. Oh no, I know. But like, it's just like every game around that era was just kind of doing like, let's Mm -hmm. do the big three. (laughs) Well, so many, yeah, no, so many new series launched when that generation started. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like they all wrapping up about the same time, except for Assassin's Creed, which was just like, we have 90 more games after this one. Yeah. And then it has like that, um, you know, that Halo thing where a lot of them are just sort of meandering after the third one or reach, I guess, in Halo's case. And they've been struggling to find an identity in that new space. And then some of them succeed in finding something new, like uh, the God of War games seem to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some of them are just sort of like floundering, like looking around for something to do, like uh, Gears of War. I can't believe Gears of War 5 had open world spaces a game series that thrives on its claustrophobia mm-hmm. and it's very, very tight yeah. set piece design. Like all of the enjoyment and the mechanics of the game outside of like John DiMaggio's voice performance are from that claustrophobic tight design. And then they were like, what if, hear me out, you drive around in a vehicle in this big snowy area where you don't have to do any of the shit that's on the map if you don't want to, but you still got to drive a lot. Mm-hmm. And like waste time. And yeah. It's like, I just, I just want to use a chainsaw bayonet. Just let me do that. Yeah. Victim of the times. Like that tries to mm-hmm. adapt to the new type of game style. And it's weird because gears was like the big progenitor of the third person shooter model that RE4, uh, Resident Evil four, I should say for people who aren't anyway, Resident Evil four sort of, you know, laid the foundation for, and then it's just so sad to see it like go from like being a trailblazer to being a trend follower. Yeah, uh, man, Microsoft, we you know mentioned earlier microsoft's like back catalog is so much smaller for their their own stuff than sony and nintendo and it's you know mostly a time thing but also like what's their big franchise that they've had for so long you know it sounds like halo is it's in transition we'll say mm-hmm. you know who's is three four three even going to keep making it i don't know i mean it's um, just, i think that's like the reason they're acquiring so many studios lately is so yeah. it's like you know we have like a bunch of like little things going on here so it's like okay now we got bethesda now we got um obsidian you know like they they don't need to have like a flagship if everything is just sort of under an umbrella yeah it's just so weird it's taken the you know sony didn't have their own like mascot for a bit because third parties were their mascot sure i mean you had your crash bandicoots and then in the playstation 2 era you had like the ratchet and clank sly coopers etc etc but 
it's just interesting seeing like the business model change from like the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 era to the PlayStation 4 and Xbox series and so forth era mm. because there's a huge emphasis on like the cinematic AAA game for uh, Sony. They got your, you know, your Uncharted 4s, your your God of War 2018s, your 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 Days Gone's, to, you know, the the things that you know, the Horizon Zero Dawn's, whatever, like just big game. And then mm. Microsoft just seems to be, you know, saying like we don't need to have like you know, a Marvel, you know, cinematic universe logo at the beginning of our AAA Sony interactive entertainment presents, you know, logo. <laughs> we just, we're just going to put shit out and then do this game pass thing. And like stuff, stuff will, stuff will emerge from there. Yeah. It's a, it's a real fascinating strategy and I'm interested to see where it goes. And, you know, we're talking about looking forward to like what this generation has in store for us. Are there any specific games that you're looking forward to playing over the next year? Oh, over the next year. Um, well, I guess um, I guess there's a new Zelda coming out. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's one. I haven't I haven't looked too deep at the release schedule for the year. My head is so buried in a spreadsheet I have that plots out months and months at a time, like ahead of time, what old games I'm going to be playing, <laughs> or else I would not be able to keep track. Sure. I mean, you got the you're playing a Resident Evil Four remake when it comes out, right? Yeah. You know, I don't. I'm mad at that because I don't want to have to play it, but I'm going to because I'm. I'm in way too deep when it comes to Resident Evil. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm annoyed that I'm going to have to play it because I'm going to want to play it. But it, Resident Evil 4 is perfectly playable. Why are they remaking it? Why aren't they remaking Code Veronica? No, it's a, it's an amazing game, but <laughs> I'm still going to play it, though. I know I have two. I have two copies of Resident Evil 4 in the house. You know, I have the Wii copy, the, the best one that's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have the 360 one because uh, it was pretty cheap, I think, when that came out. And, you know, it had achievements and we were all achievement wild for a while there. Oh, also it was in HD. I think that was probably the, the bigger draw. Most of it was in HD anyway. Let's not talk about the, the Ada Wan files thing and what they did to the cutscenes and that compressed video from the PS2. We talked about this on the Resident Evil 4 episode, like like the, the Wii and PlayStation 2 with GameCube, all that kind of stuff. Like there's no invalid way of playing it, but there isn't one that has like all the perfect pieces from each port. So it's like there's no wrong way to play it, but there's no perfect way to play this game either, necessarily. Just be ready to have some fun. Just yeah. be open to the fact that it's not scary and it's just messed up and funny. Yeah. You know, like it's it's a very John Carpentery in a way where it's like, you know, maybe you're used to the guy, this guy being a horror director, but he can also, you know, shoot the shit out of some action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, Appreciate you running through uh, basically everything there is to talk about the video game landscape lately. But um, we're about to talk about a game that means a tremendous amount to you. Uh, but before we do that, obviously you wrote the whole like retro XP, uh, you know, 101 best Nintendo games of all time. Clearly there are a lot of games that mean a lot to you and gaming is clearly a big part of your life. You've written about them professionally. Before we get into the main event, I wanted to give you the space to shout out some other games that mean a lot to you. Oh, geez. Um, okay. Uh, Earthbound, Final Fantasy VI, and Fantasy Star IV were like a kind of holy trinity for me growing up of uh, JRPGs. Mm-hmm. Really, like, not just got me into the genre, but like, get me in deep, like, still can't escape it. All tr- just tremendous games for very different reasons, uh, but all within that same kind of umbrella. Really showed a lot of what, like, games could be then, but also, you know, the direction they could go. The complexity of Final Fantasy VI's gameplay and its narrative. Um, you know, it's incredible how much of a downer huge portions of that game are. Right. Especially because even, like, if you've won, the world is still pretty messed up. 
Fantasy Star 4, you know, everyone talks about like the, uh, the Eris. Is it still Eris or is everyone saying Aerith now? I, I didn't play the it, remake. It, they're fully into Aerith now. Aerith, okay. Um, you know, everyone talks about Aerith's whole deal and how that, like, her dying was such a huge, huge blow to them and they were so shocked and couldn't believe that could happen in a video game sort of thing. And not to take away from that, it's just like, man, I wish people had played Fantasy Star 4 because it came out earlier and it was even more devastating for mm-hmm. similar reasons and stuck the landing better, but that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, and Earthbound, man, what a weird little game. Oh yeah, delightful, <laughs> perfect, perfect little like artifact, and it's like tremendous game. Yeah, one of the just Nintendo hasn't made a whole lot of kind of straight up RPGs, but they've got a few real heavy hitters. Like when they have actually done it, and Earthbound is so good. It's um, it's kind of that. What was that? What's that? tweet going around talking about you know like a what's a parody of something that ends up being like in a tremendous example of the genre that's mm-hmm. parodying like that's earthbound yeah it like, is the dewey cox of rpgs yeah yeah exactly earthbound is arguably the best classic dragon quest game mm-hmm. which is such a weird sentence but it's true like it's just that good and it's so offbeat and the humor has held up over the ages it just has so much personality i love that game so much See, I'm, I'm going to go quick, just era by era there. So there's there's some like mid '90s for you. Mm-hmm. You shouted out Gears of War too. I did. You know, it's a uh, fire it's, it's the radiance. Amazing, it's amazing how many times in my life I have said more like ten shitloads thanks to Gears of War two. <laughs> Heard there's a shitload of grubs there, Sergeant. More like ten shitloads. I had a friend who's like, oh, the, you know, the, the dialogue is so bad in that game. It comes around to good. And I'm like, no, the dialogue is fine. The performances are brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's like John DiMaggio is so on point in that game. And like Cole, oh, I forget who the voice actor for Cole is. But the whole like Cole, Cole train runs on whole wheat, baby. All mm-hmm. that stuff just will never leave my brain. I will be saying it on my deathbed, which will to the confusion of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, man, modern RPGs. I really like a lot of modern RPGs, but I do feel they fall short and for a number of reasons. Not all of them or anything, but just um, there's a lot of bloat, uh, a lot of pacing issues. Sometimes the combat gets a little too complicated, but I don't know. Something about Xenoblade Chronicles just, just hits right. It's so, so good. I've played every iteration of it as, you know, because I like it that much that I bothered to buy three different copies of it. <laughs> Super Metroid, but I'm sure we're going to talk about Metroid. Mm-hmm. Majora's Mask. My favorite game of all time. I Oh, awesome. I yeah. So I ranked Breath of the Wild number one on the list, on the top 101, because yes. I understand that Breath of the Wild is number one. <laughs> like, I get that. Completely fair choice. I like Majora's Mask better. Yeah. But I also understand that, like, it's not, but it is. You know what I mean? It's special. It's one of a kind in its, in its presentation. Yeah. And I don't think any game has perfectly replicated the feeling of that game. Like so many games that I love have come out that have come out in the last five or six years are clearly like adopting aspects mm-hmm. of Majora's Mask, whether that is the tone or the Groundhog Day scenario stuff like Outer mm-hmm. Wilds is like a no, perfect game. But nothing, nothing is Majora's Mask still to me. Yeah, it's incredible. And I feel like as someone who is turning 37 this year, I have had so many arguments in my life 
about whether that's better than Ocarina of Time. And I feel like I just come away holding my head in my hands after. And I'm like, you have no proof. You have nothing. You just liked it first. And then, I don't know, you were excited for the PS2 and you missed Majora's Mask. It's like the perfect Dark Force GoldenEye argument all over again, where I'm just like, you were confusing being 12 for quality. <laughs> it's like, it's such a, it's just so much better. It's so much obviously better is how I feel about it. But um, yeah, Majora's Mask is just so great. And the 3DS, um, the remake they did, amazing. I can't believe those games aren't on the Switch yet. I honestly cannot believe it. I, I You know, at the pandemic probably interrupted some plans um all this all this stuff keeps leaking out from nintendo where it's like oh fire emblem engage was actually done like a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. and there's possibly another fire emblem that's already done and the metroid prime trilogy was done in one form but then metroid prime 4 development was restarted so they might be doing it different like there's all this stuff that happened because of the pandemic that's so wild to me because it feels like People have been saying that the Switch is dying forever now, like not in terms of like, you know, fading out of relevance, but so much is like, how much longer can you get away without upgrading the hardware on this thing? And it's becoming a harder question for them to avoid now that they're entering, what is this, year six or seven now Yeah, for the Switch? And look, I, I would love for a perfect world to exist where I didn't have to constantly upgrade hardware. And I, you know, I have thoughts about like what Nintendo has been trying to do for years now, but it's, it's. It's just like insane to think that they would even have like two years worth of games like in the can. But yeah, enough about uh, modern gaming. We're going to go about 21 years back in time now to talk about the game that you picked today. A game that is still potent (laughs) to new players uh, who pick up and play a few weeks ago. Who am I talking about? I don't know. (laughs) It is just this wonderful game that... Still to this day, nothing is quite like. We're talking, of course, about Metroid Prime. Metroid Prime was developed by Retro Studios and published by Nintendo. Retro Studios is an American studio based in Austin, Texas, and is known for developing the Metroid Prime series, as well as Donkey Kong Country Returns and Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. The game was directed by Mark Pacini, who also directed Metroid Prime 2 and 3. Todd Keller and James H. Dargy were the lead artists, and the music was composed by Kenji Yamamoto and Kuichi Kayuma. Yamamoto has been the primary composer of the Metroid franchise since Super Metroid in 1994, uh, the only exceptions being uh, Metroid Prime Hunters on the DS and Metroid Other, Metroid Other M on the Wii. He is not to be mistaken for the other video game composer, Kenshi Yamamoto, who composed music for the Dragon Ball Z video games until he was involved in a plagiarism scandal. That was a different guy. Um, <laughs> the plot of this game follows... Sorry, hold on. Do you know about this, by the way? The Kenji Yamamoto thing? No. Yeah, no. A second I'm usually Kenji up on. Uh, I'm usually up on composers. No, this uh, happened almost a decade ago now. But there wasn't a the Kenji Yamamoto who was also a video game composer for the Dragon Ball Z franchise, and he was involved in a scandal. Apparently, accused of plagiarism. They just had to go and they did like re-releases of the games that he made, and they had to go and replace the scores for them, uh, which like made those re-releases kind of like lose their appeal for a lot of people because it was like Dragon Ball Z Budokai and Budokai Three, where like people were like nostalgic for the soundtrack in addition to those games. And it was just like, well, here is an inferior port with some other guy's music tragedy. Yeah. Don't, don't steal music. Come on. 
don't don't steal music because then you ruin the music that people <laughs> like of yours. <laughs> Your stolen music was too good, mm-hmm. and now you've ruined you've ruined music for people. Yeah. You ruined my uh, PlayStation 3 HD Budokai port. I'm still mad about that to this day, actually. <laughs> I am actually I am actively mad at this man. And it is a, it is like a going on 12 years B for him because I fucking love the Budokai 3 soundtrack. And he had to like make it so that soundtrack wasn't in the PlayStation 3 version. Fuck you. <laughs> anyway, I think it's healthy to have de- uh, like semi meaningless beefs that span decades. So I'm not actually picking a fight over a person over it and they're not responding. So it's just kind of like an outlet, which I think yeah. is a lot healthier than just like the guy going, well, fuck you back. Cause then you have to like find that agar again. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the plot of Metroid, Dr- <laughs> the plot of Metroid prime follows the bounty hunter, Samus Aran on the planet Talon four after an encounter with a parasite queen and her lifelong nemesis Ridley caused her suit to malfunction. Uh, while pursuing Meta Ridley, Samus discovers the remains of a Chozo civilization, an ancient and advanced race of giant bird people that raised an orphan Samus from childhood. As Samus upgrades her suit and searches the planet for space pirates, she discovers clues that point to the cause of what wiped out the Chozo on this planet and how it's being exploited by the space pirates she's pursuing. Talking about the gameplay a little bit, while the game is experienced from a first-person point of view, it is far more than the shooter it appears to be on the surface. In the lead up to the game's release, Nintendo called it a first-person adventure game instead of a shooter, as exploration takes precedence over violence. Uh, Metroid Prime was originally released on GameCube in 2002. Other games released in 2002 include Grand Theft Auto Vice City, Kingdom Hearts, Ratchet and Clank, Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell, Time Splitters 2, The Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind, Warcraft 3 Reign of Chaos, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, Eternal Darkness, Super Mario Sunshine, and Metroid Fusion. So that's a pretty strong showing for video games that year. Uh, Mark, how many of these games have you played, do you think? Most of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe, oddly, uh, Morrowind is maybe the only one I haven't oh, yeah? played from that. Yeah, I, um, I'm not a huge, um, I'm not a huge Bethesda person, mm-hmm. generally. Different form of RPG for you. Yeah, well, you know, actually, I like that style of RPG. I'm just not a huge Bethesda person. Like, I love Obsidian. I'm I'm the one in the back yelling that Obsidian would have done it better or Obsidian <laughs> did do it better whenever yeah. one of those happens. So, um, Although I would like to try Morrowind at some point because it's supposed to be weirder and interesting in ways that um, Skyrim and uh, what was the fourth one? Oblivion. Oblivion uh, weren't. I tried playing Oblivion for a little bit and then I was just like, eh, I'm going to go play New Vegas again. No, no. New Vegas is unimpeachable still. So what ultimately made you settle on Metroid Prime as the game that you wanted to talk about? Oh, you know, it's probably for like a single un- unbroken stretch. It's probably my favorite game. I don't think I can tell you what my favorite game is right now because it's just, it's a mess in there in my mm-hmm. brain when it comes to games. But back in a time when I knew what these things were, this was probably my favorite one for the longest, longest amount of time. You know, it was, it was amazing. It just blew me away on the GameCube when I first played it and coming back to it on the Wii when they did the Metroid prime trilogy with the, the new controls just as in awe the whole time. And I, you know, I've played it a bunch since then as well. And every time I go back to it, I'm just like, I can't believe how good this game looks. I can't believe how good it feels to play. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how good the design is. You know, this is something I got into in the top one one but it is significantly markedly better than the other two Metroid Prime games. And I think those games are stellar. Right. I think those two those two games are t- both made the list. Only one of them was number two. 
You know? Yeah. I mean, that's how numbers work, but also you get what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, think of it this way. Metroid Prime was the best Nintendo game ever from my point of view until Breath of the Wild came out. Sure. That's a, that's like a 15 year unbroken like streak where you could just uncritically say like Metroid Prime is the best game Nintendo ever put out. Yeah. And when you're talking the best game Nintendo ever put out, you are saying this is one of the greatest games of all time. Yeah. So it's not just a this is one of Mark's favorite games ever. It's like, oh, this is like one of the ones. It's just a big deal. And as as great as it is and as like well known as Metroid is in general as a series, um, if you do the math of the lifetime sales for the individual games and for the series as a whole, you realize that every person who has ever played a Metroid became a game developer. Basically it's the, uh, it's the velvet underground number, you know? Yeah. So it's like, Oh, Metroid's big, but in the sense it's like, it's big compared to like some niche thing, you know, Metroid prime sold a couple million copies. Yeah. Which is not like the, you know, the last fire emblem sold more than that. It's a tactical RPG. It's like super niche. It was a highly, um, here's the thing though, like we, I, I talk about this a little later, but like it was a very successful game relative to the GameCube, but then like you have to zoom out a little bit and then it's like the GameCube didn't do very well. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's kind of a, it's like 2 million is nice. Well, that's why Dread is now the best selling Metroid game is because they finally put one out in the middle of a system's lifespan while the system was popular. Yeah. You know, like the, um, this is the most anybody is ever going to be able to play a Metroid game. <laughs> Exactly, you know, because even Super Metroid, like, was not lo- it was not beloved in Japan. It did not sell well there, which left, you know, the other markets. Mm-hmm. And you know, video game consoles hadn't quite penetrated to the degree that they have today. So, you know, uh, North America and Europe were both huge battlegrounds between the Genesis and the SNES. So it's not like there was a clear winner there. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Mario. But there's also like the growth of the legacy too, like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the Wii was a tremendous success and it had two major Metroid games on it. It had, you know, Prime 3 Corruption and then it also had Other M. And I mean, the reason those games didn't penetrate are for like a more complicated reason where it's like the market for the Wii was primarily for casual people who weren't going to play the third entry in a series they probably haven't played the first two of. And then yeah. Other M just did not have very good word of mouth. So like the Switch is perfect for Dread because it's like, all right, so you have three plus decades of, you know, hype from people. You see the impact it has on other game developers with games like Ori and the Blind Forest, Axiom Verge, uh, the Castlevania franchise, and so on and so forth. And then, like, it, a game comes out on the console that, like, is, you know, selling insane numbers. And th- there it is, finally. It's, it's funny. That's happened, like, quite a few times now on the Switch. Yeah. Where, like, they hit a series that was kind of, like, either back in the spotlight for a reason or just like hit the exact right note. So like Kirby fire emblem and Metroid all have their best selling ever game mm-hmm. on the switch. You think they would do like one of the things where like, you know, when Disney got successful, they would be like, all right, we have the windfall to do something crazy now here in the nineties. What are we going to do? And put that into like a star Fox or an F zero, but they're still, <laughs> they're still playing, still playing. Uh, the best. Yeah. The Wii U was really the last time they were pulling out all the Wii U and 3ds. They were pulling out all the stops with the different franchises. And that's a whole other conversation about um the way the market works now that they don't do that but we stopped that part of the conversation now we're in the metroid prime part yeah um but no yeah no this is i played this game for the first time a month ago Uh and god damn it if it isn't possibly one of my favorite games ever now (laughs) isn't it so i'm so glad to hear you say no it is awesome i don't i can't believe it like i was like 
you know, doing it where it's like, I've been meaning to play this game for years and years, but I just never sat down and got around to it. I'll, I'll get into like why that's so funny in a, in, in a little bit, but no, no, it, I mean, it lives up to the hype and it, it doesn't show its age at all. Like graphically, even it, it, it just, it's just an awesome game. It's wild. Some of the visual details that they managed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the GameCube was more powerful than people like gave it credit for because it was that little purple box. So people thought it was like a little kitty thing that couldn't do anything. But it's like, actually, it's like got more horsepower than the PS2. You know, an arcade board was designed based on the GameCube. You laughed at our mini DVDs, but look who's the powerhouse. Now. Yeah. yeah, the problem with the GameCube was like storage or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, of, of the games, not the system. The system was very tidy. But yeah, the, some of the some of the visual stuff they could do the the water effects on the visor, uh, mm-hmm. Samus's face like appearing, you know, in the like seeing her own reflection in the visor, um, depending on like how the light was interacting outside outside of her uh, suit. Mm-hmm. All those little visual details, the the flashes of light, the just the actual design of things too was all drawn in a way that would hold up over time, which. <laughs> Even a few years later, you know, you started to see things when they went for that, like hyper realistic look, it started to get it. And you play those games now when they get, you play them on a bigger TV and it's like, oh, wow, this needs like a real, (laughs) this needs like a filter of some kind to make this look good. Sure. But man, I can play, I can play Metroid Prime through the Wii in just 480p on a 55 inch TV that's supposed to output at 4k and it still looks great. You know, in so many games, Bait and Kaidos beautiful GameCube game, very clearly designed for CRT screens though. Mm. If you try to play that through an HD set without the progressive scan cables, it is, it's a mess. You can't even tell what's really going on and all the beautiful pre-rendered backgrounds that exist throughout all the little bits of animation, all that it's like lost. It's muddled. It's muddy. Yeah. Prime prime just seems like it was drawn in a very timeless fashion, kind of regardless of what you're playing it on. I mean, you still want those component cables if you're playing on a GameCube. Sure. Uh, or even playing it through the Wii, but. It's just wild to think about now because they've been, you know, doing the compromising the graphical fidelity thing in favor of just like doing interesting stuff with like the way we interact with video games. But mm-hmm. there was a time where you could like say like Metroid Prime 2 is one of the best looking games ever made when it came out at the time. That was one of those like, oh my God, the power of modern day graphics kind of games. And like that was Nintendo who wasn't wasn't really known for that and would never be known for that really again in the future. Yeah, you see the monolith soft games that they put out on the Switch and like Breath of the Wild. I mean, that those still look and feel like modern games because it's a strong art direction. But like in just terms of pure graphical fidelity and um, just little the bells and whistles like you were talking about with like the way that the rain is able to interface uh, like on your visor. And if you're under uh, a tree branch or something like the rain will like you know, go as if there is an actual tree branch in front of your face. Like it's not going to just like do it uniformly. Mm-hmm. Like those, like just little details, uh, like goddamn. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. They had the ability to even do that back then, but like, I mean, they spent a while, they spent a while putting this game together and Nintendo formed retro with the p- purpose of making kind of games like uh, more like mature games that Western audiences would like. And I mean, Western audiences are really into kind of more realistic things and very like detailed, impressive graphics. So I think, you know, that was both teams deciding like that was the decision that they were making and that's how they wanted to do it. And they pulled it off. You know, they crushed it. 
Yeah, no, uh, no notes on terms of the presentation of this game whatsoever. Like it is incredible. And just to think of the fact that like Metroid was so supported by Nintendo back then that they got two Metroid games in a year because, as I mentioned, Fusion came out that year, too. Obviously, different development team, but also a, a great, great game. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like they didn't know if people would accept Metroid Prime. That's like my thinking on it. So they didn't know if people would accept Metroid Prime. So literally the same day Fusion releases. Think of how long we've gone without Metroid games sometimes and the Prime and Fusion released and literally the same day. So they were like, here's Super Metroid sequel. <laughs> Don't be angry about Metroid Prime. Yeah. By the way, here's the best video game of all time. But also, <laughs> in case you don't like it. Yeah, and Fusion is great. Yeah, I it's love so Fusion. Great. On any other, if it's like if it had released the next day, it might be the best game that ever released on that day. <laughs> <laughs> but it released on the same day as Prime, and yeah. so it never had a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, unfortunately, it's shit now because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, goddamn. But still... God, what what a year what a day to be a metroid fan oh, <laughs> um i remember it well god yeah no strong showing for video games that year strong showing for metroid before we talk about like what this game means to you personally uh, i do a segment on this show where we talk about the preservation of video games and how people are able to play the games of old so let's go into that segment no country for old games Journey to distant realms. Explore the furthest reaches of the universe. Survive deadly dangers. Experience matters of the heart. And more in a new actual play podcast. Join me, Audrey. That's right, just me, as I play tabletop games designed for one player. From journaling games to tarot games to even games that take me outside, I'm bringing you along for the ride. Join me for every episode of Alone at the Table. Editor Kiefer here. This episode was originally recorded on January 30th, 2023. On February 8th, nine days later, a Nintendo Direct presentation revealed a remastered version of Metroid Prime that was released on the Nintendo Switch eShop that very same day. A game that was nearly impossible to acquire through traditional legal means is now available to purchase for $40 either physically or digitally on the current iteration of Nintendo hardware. This significantly alters the grade I initially gave for its availability. The remastered version of Metroid Prime released on a Switch has some alterations from the original Metroid Prime, including updated visuals, alternative control schemes, and the ability to unlock artwork for the game. The updated control scheme is a welcome addition as it provides more options in addition to the originals, but the updated visuals being an improvement over the original is a matter of personal taste. Personally, I take no issue with it, but I wish it would become standard for re-releases to allow players to experience this game in its original form as well as its updated version. Within reason, of course. This game offers no such option. The remaster was developed by its original company, Retro Studios, with some assistance from Iron Galaxy, a studio that primarily does contract work for larger studios to assist in the porting of games to other consoles and platforms. However, this game does not include the names of the original staff in the credits. Instead, it credits the, quote, 
original Nintendo GameCube and Wii version development staff. End quote. This does not sit well with me, considering how this remaster was built off of the work of those original developers. For this reason, and for the lack of ability to play the game in its original state, I will not give Metroid Prime an A for availability, but instead a B. I'm not saying people who play the remaster won't really play Metroid Prime. This grade simply reflects my personal assessment of how available Metroid Prime is. The remaster is a completely valid way to experience this incredible game for the first time, but I feel like it's missing two crucial components in the name of game preservation. The names of the original developers should be preserved, and if we want to take archiving seriously, we should preserve games in their original forms as best we can. Remasters can be good. In many instances, they can be, at least to me, the definitive way to experience a game. But I've seen the altered visuals in Metroid Prime Remastered become a point of contention for some fans of the original, and I wanted that to be noted here. Also, rather than completely cut the original No Country for Old Games segment I recorded with Mark, I decided to keep it in its entirety. I found it interesting how the state of its availability radically changed in just over a week, and I personally found it very funny seeing what information is now completely inaccurate. I've marked the information that remains true with a ding, and the info that's now wrong with a buzzer. If you'd rather not hear this, then go ahead and just skip the next 10 minutes of the show. Otherwise, please have fun. I certainly did. All right, I think that's it. Let's go back to the show. Game preservation is a subject that means a great deal to me. I believe that if we want to treat video games as an art form, which it most certainly is, we need to make conscious active efforts towards preserving these games and making them readily available to play so they don't get lost to time. You and I have already talked about this (laughs) the first chunk of the episode, but it bears repeating again. This is a huge part of this podcast because we are talking about games, and a lot of the time these are games that uh, have aged out of the current generation and aren't backwards compatible with everything so you know if people want to play along with the show at all that becomes a problem for a lot of people with this segment no country for old games we're going to rate metroid prime's availability on a scale of a to arg and arg is an exclamation of frustration at how hard it is to access a game it is no way me advocating for piracy uh piracy is how samus's parents died um (laughs) uh, we should laugh at that yeah, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. <laughs> but we are. Uh, Metroid Prime was originally released on GameCube in North America in November of 2002, but the game's history of availability does not end on this console. Before we get into that, though, Mark, when you get the urge to replay this game, how do you do it? So I have uh, Metroid Prime Trilogy uh, downloaded to my Wii U, and that is the way that I play it these days. So I am one of the 12 people in the world who can do that. Well, there you go. (laughs) So Metroid Prime was developed specifically for the GameCube, but the game's first-person design made it an ideal candidate to be ported onto Nintendo's motion-controlled focus console, the Wii. In October of 2008, Nintendo launched their new Play Control series. This is a group of first-party Nintendo titles ported from the GameCube to the Wii in order to expose those games to a wider audience on the far more successful system. These games were selected because they could easily assimilate to the motion controls specific to the Wii console. So in addition to updated controls, these games received graphical enhancements as well as widescreen support. Games a part of the series include Pikmin 1 and 2, Mario Power Tennis, and Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. Exclusive to Japan, however, was the re-release of Chibi-Robo, as well as Metroid Prime in February of 2009, and its sequel, Echoes, in June of that year. But that does not mean the rest of the world didn't get Metroid Prime on the Wii. 
Rather than releasing them as separate titles, North America, Europe, and Australia got the compilation title Metroid Prime Trilogy, the game that you just mentioned, Mark. This game was released in 2009 and got discontinued in America and Australia in January of 2010, giving it a very limited release window in those territories. Europe continued to support the release of the title for some years, though. In late January of 2015, the Metroid Prime Trilogy was made available for digital download on the Wii U eShop. Uh, this is the only legal way to play Metroid Prime and its sequels without resorting to buying a physical copy in the secondary market. Of course, the Wii U eShop, as along with the 3DS eShop, will be shutting down in March 27th, 2023, uh, a month after this episode's release. <laughs> so, in terms of availability, uh, realistically, uh, that is going to be no. Uh, that, I, I'm confident giving this game an ARG. Uh, uh, the Wii U servers are shutting down. There's no legal way to acquire Metroid Prime or Metroid Prime tr Trilogy. The Wii U didn't even sell very well, so it's not like there's just a bunch of people with Wii U's that are like, oh shit, let me go boot that up and download it before the stores close. So, um, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> hey, I saw two Wii U's out in the wild today for sale, used for less than 100 bucks. So, mm -hmm. keep keep your eyes out, people. Sure. Go, go, hurry up. <laughs> One, don't walk to the uh, to the nearest uh, game store. My brother and I lucked into getting a used copy at GameStop uh, a couple years after the title was like technically discontinued. Uh, the game, the copy, it's actually in his possession now, and he lives several states away. Uh, and I imagine it's worth quite a bit of money, uh, but I highly, highly doubt he would ever sell it, because why would you? It's <laughs> hard to get copies of Metroid Prime Trilogy out in the wild, and if you are yeah. lucky enough to get one, it's going to be... Oof, probably no less than $80. So, yeah, I remember um I remember Metroid Prime on the GameCube dropping to be like, you know, 7-8 bucks at GameStop. And now, you know, it's it's that much further away from that point and you can't get it easily. So, you know, a copy of that if you find it out in the wild at 60-70 bucks, which is cheap for a GameCube game actually, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the scale, but you <laughs> There's, there's no reason for it not to be ported onto the Switch. The whole like rumor mill has been saying some variation of Metroid Prime Trilogy is going to get ported to the Switch any day now since like 2018. We're in 2023 now. We've gone through yeah. we've gone through president ter presidential terms in a time that people have been pushing this rumor. <laughs> God, there is an explanation for that that I think I believe, and it was uh, I think Chris Kohler might have mapped it out. Um, just kind of like following the timeline of events, and it seems like they had. A whole trilogy ready to go and uh -huh. they were waiting to release it as like a way to get people excited for metroid prime 4 and then metroid prime 4's development was stopped and restarted and retro studios took over because mm -hmm. it was namco that was making it originally right and then with everything slowing down in the pandemic they went instead of porting this over why don't we remake just metroid prime as like a standalone and that's that's the new rumor is they're just going to do that. So it's still going to be like the runway to Metroid Prime 4, but they need to have Metroid Prime 4 in a condition like that needs to be on the way to releasing and, you know, the holiday so they can do a spring release of, yeah. uh, of, of Metroid Prime. So hopefully the ARG gets an upgrade. Knock on wood, but um, it has been four years since it was announced that they are restarting the development of Metroid Prime 4. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's it's not uncommon for a video game to be in development for four years, but it is mm -hmm. 
it, it it's strange for a game at like a, on a Nintendo level, but I mean that that bodes well that it's taking so much time. But of course, that does just sort of mean like if there is a trilogy out there, then like you said, it's probably going to be what would happen is like they have a Nintendo Direct, they show the trailer for Metroid Prime Four, they're like it's real, <laughs> fuck you guys, stop asking us, it's coming out uh, <laughs> a, a, on X date, and to tide you motherfuckers over, Metroid Prime Trilogy is available now on the eShop. I'll allow it fuck you get out of my face it's that kind yeah. of shit that, that that's very likely will happen <laughs> it's also very likely they would do the same thing they did for the mario uh 64 sunshine galaxy release and like do it another limited window oh my god i, <laughs> like, I, I mean i hope not too but I, I know these motherfuckers they're they're fucking they they hate money but they love it so much i'm i'm, I'm keeping it an arc when it drops from an arc <laughs> i will make an announcement i will eat crow on audio and say like Look, we got to change the rankings for some things, but so far I haven't had to revise a ranking yet. Well, you know, I don't think there's even any crow to eat if it happens because it hasn't happened. You know, we're we're just assuming that this will eventually happen. There's no read, no reason to preemptively go away from the arg. So you're yeah. you're making the right decision. There's yeah. no crow, no crow to eat. I'm, I'm I think I'm just reflexively like because this is very similar to the conversation that Manu and I had about uh, Metal Gear Solid 3's lack of availability. <laughs> so I think I'm just like going on my impulse like Konami's not going to fucking do it. They're 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 going to drag their feet on like making this game available because it, it, it's not a pachinko machine. Oh my god! Don't get me started on Konami and making things available. We don't have the time. We're already an hour and a half in. <laughs> <laughs> I got a whole thing about Hudson Soft. I can complain about this for hours. Oh yeah, we got we we got to talk about Metroid Prime though. But uh, I guess <laughs> I should get into how I played this game because I just mentioned the fact that I technically bought the game, but it is not in my house. So up until now, I have been able to play every single game we've discussed on the show through legitimate means. For 16 episodes, I haven't had any problems. Even the other games I've given to a, I've given an arg to so far, which has just been Metal Gear Solid 3 and Pokemon Emerald, I owned copies of. So keep in mind, I did exchange Legal Tender for Metroid Prime Trilogy at some point in my life. Uh, <laughs> you, it, I, I played it, so clearly I have the so clearly I have it. I, I own this game. My young my younger brother has custody of it, but I have this game. But the way I was able to play this game was through an application called Prime Hack, which allows you to play Metroid Prime through a modded version of the GameCube and Wii emulator Dolphin. Now, emulators are not illegal. And I, all I'll say is I have Metroid Prime Trilogy. So, you know, the Dolphin enabled me to play the Metroid Prime Trilogy ROM I have with mouse and keyboard controls, similar to how first person games are traditionally played, which was exciting. Uh, the controls on mouse and keyboard, if you know how to map them, are fucking fantastic. The mouse and keyboard controls may have made shooting just as easy, if not easier, than playing with a Wii, Wii remote, which is fantastic. Um, I played the game on my computer and monitor with a widescreen 16 by 9 aspect ratio. Uh, other than that, no modifications to the game were made, no texture packs whatsoever. Just a really, really gorgeous game that translates really well to HD presentation. Yeah, I'm glad the mouse and keyboard work uh, really well because the there is some slight change from the original GameCube version to the uh, the Wii version of the game, um, and it's because of you know using the pointer. Um, but like kind of the way that Samus's like head kind of can look around, and the fact that you can lock onto an enemy enemy while moving the reticule kind of independently. Because mm. um, the GameCube was very much like you hold down a button to lock onto something, and that's that's what you're firing at. You know, yeah. but the Wii one really opened things up. So it's like you could you could look you could look in one direction and you could shoot in another direction. 
and it all worked beautifully. Uh, and it was great because it made it feel have a real like even in combat, you had kind of a 360 thing going on if you really wanted to. You know, you could kind of spin and then check out the whole room and see what's going on. Yeah, so it's good that the you got to emulate not just the game, but you know, the actual controls as well. Yeah, because yeah, like I, I was playing the it's the Wii version of the game that I was playing, so I got all those quality of life up, upgrades with the benefit of having like a control scheme that I don't need to have a Wii remote for. Like I, like I said, I don't know if that would make the game technically easier to play using mouse and keyboard versus the Wii remote because of I don't have to play the whole like uh, the the remote scanner game. But I, I I did not have a very difficult time shooting at things, and I know that the controls were a complaint for the uh, the GameCube version of the game. So that's mm. that that that's just something that I'm grateful for. And look, it's a genuine shame that this game is so difficult to acquire legally. Mm. Metroid Prime is critically acclaimed. Holds a 97 on the review aggregator website Metacritic, currently making it the 19th highest rated game ever on the website. Uh, it won Game of the Year awards from multiple outlets, including GameSpot, GameSpy, EGM, Nintendo Power, and Edge. And it was the sixth best-selling game on the Nintendo GameCube, for what that's worth. But we're not here to reduce the legacy of Metroid Prime to a series of numbers and accolades. We're here to discuss its impact on the people who played it. So, let's get into it, Mark. What do you like about this game that you wish more games in general would do? <laughs> uh, I mean, it essentially created, a, you know, so, so Super Metroid really created a genre. Like, I know there were other games like it, obviously, the first Metroid was there, but this really enhanced things, and in, in that game really enhanced things in a way that makes that the, like, progenitor to Metroidvanias in the same way that Symphony of the Night is the, um, the Vania part of that, you know? And the fact that they were able, Retro was able to translate that experience, this kind of like Pathfinder experience, to first person without losing anything from that, and with an expansion of it by making, I, I mentioned like the 360 view in combat, but it happens while you were doing all the platforming too, you know? This is a uh, first person adventure game, but it is also a platformer. Oh yeah. And... It's not just because there are platforms, you know, it's, it's, it's really like the complexity of it all is what really makes it a platformer where it's not just, oh, this game has platforms, you know, um, like Metroid 2 has platforms. It's not a platformer, but this Metroid Prime very much is. And it's, it's this kind of blending of genres into making something that really only the Metroid Prime games are like this to this degree mm-hmm. and with this much ambition and vision. It's kind of wild in a way that it hasn't been replicated so much. But I think it's because there really is just this extra complexity to it that makes it more difficult to pull off than making a uh, Metroidvania. And I'm not saying making a Metroidvania is simple by any means. It's just that that style with the limitations that are in place in 2D for that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that as a negative. It's just like a reality of the situation thing. Um, they don't. There's like more you can do in 3D to a point where. I don't think anyone knows how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason Metroid Prime 4 isn't out yet might be <laughs> because they're still figuring out how to do it. Uh, the formula had changed quite a bit by the time even Metroid Prime 3 had come out, you know? Um, and Namco obviously couldn't figure it out to satisfy Nintendo. And now, like, Retro's back at it. and So it's a difficult, difficult thing to do. And I think it, it kind of the difficulty of putting it all together and how successfully they managed to do so it just sticks out to me every time I play. And I, I, th- I think about it all the time, just uh, how impressive everything on like every level is. For sure. And to your point that that, that access point is like a very, very good point as to why there haven't been more 
games in this style, especially in the first person perspective. Like I think the most the modern equivalent that I can think of in terms of like what does a Metroidvania look like in a 3D space and it's the the, the Soulsborne series, right? Which, you know, gets the obvious comparison to Legend of Zelda, but in just terms of like pure navigation, backtracking through a place, uh, discovering a shortcut that like recontextualizes your relationship with the space around you. In essence, it's not one for one, but I think that's really the closest mm-hmm. I can think of of like, like a 3D Metroidvania that works uh even remotely as well as uh, Metroid Prime does. And so, uh, certainly other games have attempted it. I think of Jedi Fallen Order, which is more trying to like do the Dark Souls thing more than it is like consciously trying to do a Metroid game. But uh-huh. the, the sentiment is definitely there in terms of like lack of fast travel and you having to like go back through these spaces sometimes in their entirety to get back to your central point. But I don't think it's the best execution of it i like that game but you can see why mm-hmm. metroid prime is why it is and that really comes down to the presentation yeah and <laughs> part of the reason there haven't been more metroids um i mean now the world is flush with metroidvanias we have literally more than we can play mm. you know but at the time nintendo couldn't even get someone they they didn't want to make a sequel to super metroid because they didn't know how they didn't know what to do yeah they essentially were like uh, we did it <laughs> We made one of the greatest games ever, and we don't know where to go from here. So they tried to con like contract a third studio, a third party studio. We still don't know who it is, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like decades later, and no one knows who it is. And they said no, and the reason they said no is because they were afraid they would not live up to the quality of Super Metroid. So that's why they made they they founded Retroid, and Miyamoto eventually was like, "Hey, you should make a first person Metroid because we're your bosses, and we told you to do that." <laughs> no, no one can say no to this request. While I was like doing research for this episode, the anecdote came up of like, why wasn't there a Metroid game on a Nintendo 64? And it was like, we couldn't figure out how to make Metroid even work with that controller. Like we kind of fucked ourselves with that one. I love that controller so much, you know, but it definitely limited the imaginations of uh, a lot of developers. Yeah, I think um, 2D games did were kind of a rarity on the, the N64. There were a lot of there were like not a lot. There were a few really great ones. But yeah, it, it feels like where metroid had to go because you know nintendo loves to tie games to like the hardware and the n64 the big thing about that really was what the controller could do you know the things you could do holding it with the analog stick and holding in the different the the different wings and different configurations and it feels like metroid had to go beyond that sort of thing to live up to the standard set by super metroid so i can i can understand easily why like there were just frustrations and they couldn't make it work and couldn't tie things around the controller. Some of the very best games in that system, like uh, Sin and Punishment, Treasure thought that Treasure and Nintendo co-developed that. They thought it was going to take like a year or whatever. It ended up being in development for most of the lifespan of the N64. And a lot of it had to do with how much they tied it to the controller and really figuring it out how to get it just right. Mm. <laughs> so I can see them being like, you know, Super Metroid didn't sell that many copies. <laughs> Let's do something else. Yeah. Let's try Mother 3. <laughs> <laughs> but they obviously overcame some ideas uh, in time for Metroid Prime. And it was like, hey, why don't we do it in first person? There are really good first person games on the N64, but I feel like the the best of them weren't coming out until very late in the lifespan. And at that point, yeah, you're just, just working a GameCube game, you know? Right. There, so much of this game is tied to the perspective of everything. And I think that's why I'm like so obsessed with this game and why i love it so much is i i love the metroid series i haven't played all of them 
I mean, I've, I've played Super Metroid, I played Metroid Fusion, I played Metroid Dread. I have an idea of what the series is, the, the rhythms of it. It's great, but that new dimension adds so much, and it would not work in third person because it's going for a completely different kind of atmosphere. Like Metroid Dread, you play that game, and it is way more fast-paced than you would ever expect a Metroid game to be. And Super Metroid even, like obviously like you see how that's <laughs> become so conducive to speedrunning, and obviously this game is too. But with Prime, it is so much about the immersion and the atmosphere. And I, I don't know. It's just like everything just sort of falls back into how you experience this world through the eyes of Samus and like how that becomes your shared perspective, you looking through that visor. And I don't know. It's just it, it, it's a hell of a thing. It's part of the reason I'm glad Samus doesn't speak in the game. Mm -hmm. is because like you said you are viewing the game you are really experiencing it through her eyes in a way i feel like you don't automatically do from a first person perspective like yes uh, you know like all shooting games in first person have you looking it's like oh i am you know even like doom it's like okay i see my hands and i see the gun and i see what i'm gonna do and i see what's in front of me and what i have to shoot and where i have to go but there's like a really intricate and close-knit relationship between what Samus is seeing and what you are seeing and what you are experiencing and what you are feeling in this game. And it's because in a lot of first person, uh, first person shooters, you are moving quickly and you are reacting and you are fighting and you are always in combat. But in this, there's so many quiet moments and moments where Samus is alone and you can hear the music. The music isn't pushed completely to the background. The music in Metroid Prime is rarely in the foreground though. It's very much just part of the environment that's kind of like helping to like set the tone and set the mood. And it's not it's not as in your face as it was in Super Metroid. Mm -hmm. And I think it leaves a lot of room for hearing the sounds of the environment and really, I know this word gets overused, but um, kind of immersing yourself in it. Right. It just helps kind of like complete that complete painting, the painting of that picture. Even something like the scanning, the scanning, the going and the reading and the like. What you end up reading is a combination of like Samus's notes and her thoughts on the subject, what she is putting into the computer and what her own systems are telling her about a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of also like tightens that relationship between you and Samus in the game. And uh, it really adds to those the moments of fear, the moments of dread, the moments of quiet, the moments where you were just trying to figure something out or the moments where you're just appreciating like, the drip of rain coming off of these leaves in this like beautiful but clouded over and dangerous place. There's, there's just a lot going on. And it, it's good that they waited till the GameCube to do this sort of stuff too, because as much of an N64 um, defender as I am, like you weren't going to pull any of this off. Um, I don't think you would have been able to create the same kind of relationship between player and uh, Samus and the shared perspective and all that. Right. And, the other thing is like the presentation doesn't just stop at like the perspective, but in terms of like how the world is made and how it reacts to you. This is a game that is I, I don't want to use the word economical because it undercuts like the, the sophistication of everything that goes on there. But it does not have a single extraneous bit of like distraction. Like the big thing with Half-Life 2 when it came out is like you're always in control of, you know, Freeman. Like even during the cutscenes. But the thing is, like when you are in those cutscenes, you are locked into the room and you can't like do anything to get out. Uh -huh. What Metroid Prime does is it does have like those like few cinematic moments where it's like, okay, here's the boss, here it comes. 
but you're not bogged down by like exposition. You're not bogged down by having to interact with an individual. It is an isolating game because the only things that you see are non-humanoid in nature. Like the the pirates that you see are the closest thing. And even then they kind of have like hunched over backs and don't really have like things that we can perceive as like human limbs. It's just mm-hmm. so they're, they're, they're bipedal. And that's kind of like where the resemblance of humanity stops. And there's like very little voice acting. Like the the only like spoken dialogue you're really going to hear is from your own suit communicating uh, status conditions to you. Everything that you experience about this world, all the information that you learn from it is voluntary through the scanning system. And the scanning system is also like a huge pro for the game because like it's you meeting and choosing voluntarily to absorb about as much of this game as you want to, learning the lore of it. There's like very important information about the history of the Chozo and why five decades ago they they were wiped out. But there's also just like really fucking funny stuff like towards the back half of the game you're just seeing like uh stuff from pirates you're not just like reading the lore of the chozo anymore you're seeing like pirates leaving memos around and it's like fuck 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 what the fuck is this woman (laughs) doing to us oh my god and then other stuff like one note that really stuck out to me it's like we're trying to replicate the technology of her suit and we like tried to like create the morph ball technology and we just ended up like crushing four of our own guys shit fuck and then (laughs) then like you also just see other stuff like uh like their whole process of like using metroids for like their 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 ends and then you see things are like please don't feed the metroids kind of shit but then like (laughs) yeah so like you have lore you have like oh my god samus is so scary you have like sciencey bits and like what the pirates are doing to the thing that wiped them out and you're kind of coming into those own things independent of you're putting the pieces together because you know that information. They're not putting those pieces together because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's just like wonderful. Like you are you are solving a puzzle that is not necessarily interactive, but just like filling in the blanks of a story that you're experiencing. Absolutely. And I, I do love that the the scan scanning all the stuff from the space pirates lets you see like these are not like mindless creatures, you know? Mm-hmm. Um Samus is doing very bad things to very evil people. <laughs> well, the scanning is so good that like I have an idea for like a Metroid Prime movie essentially that has even less dialogue than 2001 that is very often just shot in a like visor perspective seeing what Samus is seeing. And maybe there's some other dialogue from like other characters, but you don't want to go too far with that either. Uh, you mentioned the lack of people like humanoid creatures to interact with and speak with. I like Metroid Prime 3 quite a bit. I really think it's a great game. I think one of the reasons that it pales so much in comparison to Metroid Prime is because it does bog you down with all this exposition and these extra characters and it's things you can't skip. And it's got the Half-Life 2 thing that you mentioned where it's like, okay, I'm walking around, I'm walking around. Oh, this person wants to talk to me. Oh, I'm stuck here. I can't do anything. I can't go. I want to go. I want to explore. And it just interrupts, it interrupts itself so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Compared to this game where you just, if you don't want to scan things, don't scan things. If you want to learn every bit you want to learn, go ahead. Me personally, I think Samus would be reading all these things and figuring out if there's any danger ahead or why this is happening and what, you know, even like as a, as a bounty hunter completing her job, she wants all this information. But as someone whose parents were murdered by these same space pirates, you know, she wants to know what their deal is and wants to know, like get any edge she can against them. Right. Um, she was raised by the Chozo. She would have a vested interest in figuring out like why they were wiped out on this planet. Yeah. And none of it is like in an, 
<laughs> some games with the codec stuff is very much like, hey, we got a bunch of audio logs. Everyone recorded their thoughts right before. And like, I, I'm fine with the audio log thing, but something about just having the scanning there and being able to read it and not having to listen to it and not having those recordings be interrupted constantly because like someone showed up in the next room or whatever, you know, it's a positive. But yeah, the beauty of the scanning thing, right, uh, is that it's also brief. Like you don't have to spend like three minutes listening to an audio log or just combing through pages and pages of a book or some ancient text. It's just kind of like, here's a paragraph of some information. And if you go to the other side of the stream, you can read another paragraph. And then in the next room, there's another paragraph for you. And then maybe you won't see information again for another hour. Who knows? But it's it's lovingly laid out for you in a way where it's like you can just consume it in little chunks, which I think is a lot more conducive to the uh, the mind of a gamer. Yeah, and it, it does a good job of peeling away like the layers of the game world at a, in a in a good pace. You never feel overwhelmed with the amount of things to scan, um, so you can really just keep moving along. You still feel like you're moving along even when you're stopping to scan everything that there is to be scanned. Mm-hmm. That's you know we're talking mostly about like the computer stuff here, but I also I love scanning the enemies. Because there's useful information there, or it's just like interesting, the thought that has gone into creating these creatures, who are of like varying levels of dangerous to Samus. You know, there's plenty of like flora and fauna that do nothing, and then there's other ones that'll like poison you or eat you or whatever. But it's all it's all fascinating, just how much effort went into into building this world beyond just like wouldn't this look cool? Like you can tell that there's this deeper level of thought that went into every little bit. Yeah. It's also just a good like that that scanning system is just a great way of like non-intrusively giving the player hints, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a heavily voice acted game that would be either given to you kind of disruptively via voice or uh, you would have the game interrupt it to like go through a conversation where somebody like tells you the instructions. But here it's just kind of like this is the enemy. This is why it's here. Uh, it's immune to this and it can be hit by this. And that's just kind of the end of it. Like I said, like it keeps it in a paragraph mm-hmm. and then you only really need to read it if you're struggling. Like you can scan it if you just want to scan it for completion's sake. Uh, but you can really just like power through it if you know what you're doing. It's so, so, so rewarding for repeat playthroughs of this game that you can just power through every single thing and there's very little to interrupt you and your agency as a player. And that is fucking phenomenal. And it's so maddening that so many games that have been made since <laughs> won't let you like and I'm not saying every game has to do that. So I know like different games oh, yeah. are trying out to seek out to do different things. But just in terms of what this game can do and what this game does and how little you have to commit to accomplish that, it is a miracle game. And that's why it's such a masterpiece to me because it is all game all the time and it is still such a profound experience in that interactive space. I love how quickly it like shows its hand in that regard too about like what it's capable of doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the game opens on the frigate Orphean, which had escaped uh, planet Zebs, Zebus, Zebus, whatever. It's blown up. doesn't matter. Um, after Samus had blown it up. Should we call the cops? Yeah, no, uh, we did, but it's okay. Cause the cops said that like the people she hit are just kind of like nothing. So that's fine. What do you mean? The people were just kind of nothing. They're just like not important, like like they don't matter. Like uh, there's like no records of them. And you like you know you can scan various things, and you're kind of seeing like what's what systems are working on the frigate and which aren't. There's not really any combat for a little bit. Um, you just see that like some some shit has gone down and it is bad on this frigate, and you're learning like kind of what you're getting into. And it's really 
it's really like heightening the mood. It's creating tension, especially when you start to find space pirates laying on the floor already dead. And by scanning them, you get to read about the very grisly ways they died and the weird ways their bodies are contorted in. Mm-hmm. Or even some of them don't really look like bodies anymore, but your computer assures you that that was once a body. The cops were just like, oh yeah, this is fine. Don't worry about it at all. Yeah, they're not, the cops aren't even gonna like follow up on it because like the people are like already dead. Oh my God, they're dead? Yeah, yeah, they're dead. Barry, can I talk to you for a second? I feel like it immediately throws you in to just kind of, not like horror, but it's very like table setting, setting the scene, creating the mood, and showing you just what the the game has to offer, but also what the scanning has to offer in terms of adding to the tension. I love that they called the new Metroid Metroid Dread, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a great name for it, for a Metroid game, because Dread is the primary emotion you get out of a Metroid game. I feel like they spend so much time building you up into feeling like you are unstoppable and invincible until they throw something at you that makes you realize you are not and that you are very close to dying at any moment. This, they can't, they, they don't throw bosses at you or combat at you in the same way that causes those problems for you in Super Metroid and in the 2D ones. So I feel like they use the scanning, not just for lore, but also to like heighten that tension and make you feel, make you feel nervous about what's to come in ways that the 2D games by virtue of their design without any of that weren't able to do. So it's, it's like a, a very kind of roundabout way in some ways, but um, very economical in others for kind of like recreating that feeling through a different, through a different lens. Right. Like it does a great job on the presentation level of like com- conveying a mood of like what you're supposed to feel in a moment. Like when you're in like the, whether it's like on the frigate at the beginning of the game or you're in like the, 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 the pirate labs on the planet itself, like you, you can, you can clearly see like some shit is happening here. And it's, if you want to like be upset, you can, you can read and scan those things and see what's going on here. And then like I alluded to earlier, you can also, if you've been reading the, the notes that the Chozo left behind 50 years ago, like feel even worse about it because it's people repeating the history of something 50 years ago and potentially awakening like a, an evil that's been left there. It's very uh, settler colonialism. It's very, uh, you know, capitalistic pursuit of greed and destruction and power. But it, it is also just like, fuck, this is just a pain to like have to experience. It's a real downer of a game. <laughs> yeah, in so, in so many ways, one of those games where, like, even when you win, you you lose because the planet is already dead, dying. You have found a lost civilization that is staying lost, and at that point, all Samus needs to do is clean up what she can of the mess and get off the planet successfully. Mm-hmm. And every you know, in the twelve hours or whatever that you get from that point, where you realize both you and the planet are fucked, but one of you doesn't have to be sure it is to the end. yeah it indulges in a power fantasy but it also is very much like it, it it does a balancing act with that though like you feel yourself getting more powerful like you said and there's also you know the new challenge just around the corner is ready to fuck you up and really the the the, the strength is the experience that you get coming into the next playthrough which is what makes these games so rewarding as they are just they are long enough that you feel the length of it on that first go around but mm-hmm. on that time coming back you can take that experience to have like a short burst of a 
great playthrough taking that knowledge she had from the first time and it's not unlike the resident evil games they're good at resident evil games in that way where you can Mm -hmm. put as much into it as you want to but i just think that the way that metroid prime does it specifically is just so it's like it's so pure like it's not cut with anything man it's it's amazing that it ever happened to because they haven't they haven't really come close to replicating it metroid prime 2 i think i might have written about this specific thing uh when i was doing the list but it feels like a better game than the original Metroid Prime for a significant part of its runtime, which is like amazing that they were able to do that. But then they get too compli- they get they like go a little too far, you know, they get a little too complicated, they get a little too cute, and they lose a lot of that. And it's like, ah, okay, so Metroid Prime isn't just as good as it is because they had these amazing ideas and this amazing design. They also avoided mistakes. And they avoided ex- like extraneous things. Yeah, that just doesn't happen. Think of how many great, great, great games you've played where there's like kind of one thing that holds it back from really ascending, you know, to that next level. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, you're ranking the top 101 Nintendo games of all time on your Retro XP Substack. Metroid Prime, you said, was ra- was ranked second, uh, only being beaten by Breath of the Wild. Metroid Prime 2 was ranked 36th, and Metroid Prime 3 was 57th. So let's you, you've you've alluded to it, but you saw you talked about like how Metroid Prime Three it does like that whole like narrative lock in. What are the what are their like specific shortcomings, and what makes Metroid Prime better to you? Three also, I, I know I'm starting at the end, but uh, three also is more combat oriented, and the combat feels good, but it does take away from some of the exploration. You know, we talked about sliders being pushed too far to the to one side or the other. Uh, earlier and this is a case of it it kind of got pushed a little too far to the combat side so even though it's good there's more of that it's more of a first person shooter than a first person adventure game Mm -hmm. even if it feels like metroid half-life it's still not quite you know it's not as good as like a half as half-life 2 yeah it's not as good as the metroid prime games that came before it so you're kind of just left with this weird like in-between thing also the the actual level design is split. So instead of one giant world to continue to explore and, you know, do a lot of backtracking in the, the levels are broken up. Like you're traveling to multiple planets and each one is kind of like on theme. I don't know. It feels more like traveling to an area in a Zelda game that without, without like a real like hub world, you know, there's no Hyrule field. It's just like traveling to the, the outer areas. Yeah. The dungeons. So like things are connected and there is some backtracking in the sense you can like get back in your ship and fly to another planet and go get a thing you couldn't get before because you didn't have the item until now. But it doesn't feel that, you know, that feeling in any, in any other Metroid, like 2D, 3D, whatever, where you get an item and you, you're traveling through somewhere on your map and you kind of find this way and you're not sure where it's going to go. And it pops you out on the other side of the map in a place you've already been. And you're like, oh my God, this is all one place, <laughs> you know? And it, corruption is missing that. So kind of a little too much action and the action's good, but it's not, it's not good enough to justify how much more of it there is. And the exploration is the worst of any of the prime games. So still a great game for a lot of reasons. It has one of my very favorite moments from any Metroid game, which is there's a early boss battle against Ridley where you are just falling and falling down this giant shaft. And Ridley has really like flies up to Samus and grabs Samus and goes to like bite her scratch or whatever. And you have to fire 
directly down his throat again and again to like you know stun him as that would happen if someone shot you down the throat with laser beams sure it sounds like the balrog fight from uh, lord of the rings yeah it pretty much is that except with samus and ridley and it's got a killer ridley theme and it ends with her literally shoving the arm cannon like down his throat where you can't see it anymore just really like i'm gonna get this in there this time you know right it's wonderful right Oh, sorry. Uh, do you want me to talk about two? Yeah, go for it. go for okay. two. Because like I have my, I have, I have things I want to talk about. But I want to see if two gets in any of that. I think two really does the kind of thing that like Resident Evil two does so well compared to the original Resident Evil, where it's like, what if we take kind of the basic structure of this, but we expand it, like all the things that really worked, we expand. So it's like this is bigger, this is harder, this is bigger, this is you know, and it was really kind of hitting those things on like every way it needed to. And then they did that huge, like, okay, you have to go back to every area you've been in and find these hidden things. And it's really clearly only there to like extend the length of the game. And it's just not nearly as fun. It feels pretty forced. It feels extraneous and unnecessary. And the game, like you want the game to be over while you're doing it, which is not good feeling i don't mean the like oh i'm ready for the end kind of feeling like you get a breath of the wild where you're like yeah i'll go kill ganon now this is just like i don't want to be doing any of this fetch quest 2003 bullshit right now well let's talk about that a little bit because that is a part of metroid prime one proper does metroid prime 2 implement in a different way yes so metroid prime one you can find all of those things as you were in those places the first time or once you get the item to acquire them Metroid Prime 2 gatekeeps all of this backtracking and item acquisition to a certain point in the game and in the story. So you have to play all these places through the first time all the way through, as far as you know, and then you have to return to all of them one at a time to find this one little thing that is in each of these sections, or multiple things that are in each of these sections. Gotcha. So, oh, they, 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 they uh, Wind Waker it with the Triforce quest and that, similar. Yeah, yeah, but at least, like, the tri- at least the Triforce quest in Wind Waker... You're collecting those maps throughout and they're hidden in more like clever ways and you get some extra like dungeon work out of it. This is like the worst version of that where it's just like, where is this thing? Oh, I can't see it unless I put this scanner on Mm. kind of thing. So then you're just like scanning every all these places you've been and trying to solve these little riddles and finding it. Whereas in Metroid Prime, the original Metroid Prime, you know, there's like the one in the... um, there's one of those MacGuffins you need that's in the uh, Magmore Caverns. And it's just like, oh, I have a super missile. Sure, I'm just going to shoot this precarious looking thing that I scanned immediately upon seeing it and realized like, oh, that would probably blow up if I shot it, you know? Right. One is so a matter you- of like situational awareness rewarding you throughout the game. And then like you finally like it comes full circle at the end when you realize you need to collect these to progress versus how in two does it where it's like, fuck you, you can't see these anyway. You- you're not going to be able to get them. You have to do it at the end. Yeah, I, I forget exactly how long it took me, but with I because when I played it again for the list, I used a guide for it because it's so fucking frustrating. And I've played that game before multiple times. Mm-hmm. And just for this, because it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like the part you dread uh, right. and you don't want to do it. And it keeps you from playing something in the first place. So it was that. So I looked through a guide with the guide telling me exactly where to go. This still took me like three or four hours. Jesus. The game's not that long. Like, it's longer than that, but it's not that long. So you're talking about, what, a third a third or a, a quarter of the runtime of the entire game is this bullshit back and forth. And it really, it really harms everything that made the game work and knocks it back. 
Because, like, let's talk about, like, the design philosophy of Metroid a little bit, for especially for listeners who may not be as familiar. So, like, you think about the upgrades that you get in a Metroid game, right? And it's very rarely about, like, being more efficient at killing people. Uh, like, you get the missile upgrades. Like, you get more, like, missiles in your tank, and you get, like, the super bomb towards the end and everything, right? But, like, every single thing you get is in service of solving a puzzle later. Like, the morph ball that mm-hmm. you get is so you can, like, fit through tiny crevices. The missiles that you get can be used to open doors. The super missiles even can be used to open doors. Like the, there are very much like obstacles in the way that justify you getting weapons. And a lot of the weapons that you get throughout the game, it feels more like you're defending yourself than you are like causing destruction. So like you get like things like the magnet upgrade for the morph ball. So you can go up a surfaces vertically instead of like crawling around on the ground. Mm-hmm. Like all of that is like very much like de-emphasizing combat and more just prioritizing exploration as a means of getting around and that's talking about like the failures of like what three does where it like emphasizes the combat and de-emphasizes the exploration where like the structure of a metroid game with the gravities even suit upgrades like you resist heat you're able to jump higher underwater all these upgrades that you get are in service of exploration so it's hard to see this game be more action oriented when your experience with all of the tropes of the series and the powers that you get through them serve a certain purpose. And to two's end where like, you know, you are locked into not doing the fetch quest until the very end of the game. What makes that fetch quest so not cumbersome in Metroid prime is how it rewards the exploration that the game is always trying to covertly promote throughout the game. Like the whole reason you're backtrack in a Metroid game is so like you take that upgrade you got when you reach that dead end and you you as a player are like well this opens up this color door so let me go look at this map and see where those color doors are oh there's one on the other side of this map in another area I'm going to walk back hey like let me shoot that missile up on this thing holy shit that's a little secret I found on the way to the progress as an extension of that you find those little gear things that are able to unlock the last section of the game like that, that becomes a part of that exploration. That becomes like a built in part of the reward of exploration because you are being tested on it. That is the, that is like, have you been, what have you been learning so far in this game? When you tell me that Metroid Prime 2 does that, I just think like, oh my God, that sounds so annoying. Besides like extra missiles in your tank, what is the reward for exploration? Well, the, the exploration to that point was what it should be. You mm-hmm. know, um, it's the same deal where it's like, oh, I'm going to head over here. And then it's like, wait, what's that? I have to investigate that. I will come back to this branch in my path at this point, you know, Mm -hmm. and it worked wonderfully. And it was even part of the reason it was better than the, um, the first prime is because you had the two different dimensions that you were in, you know, the the two different sides of the planets, each side of the planet showed you echoes of the other because you switch between like the light side of the planet and the dark side of the planet that was trying to swallow the light side whole. Okay. So like the light world, dark world thing and like a link to the past kind of. Yeah, and it's got a real like Twilight Princess thing going on too, with like weird shadow creatures sucking the light out of out of the world, sort of deal. Okay, all of that was so cool because it's like, oh, so I don't have to just think about what I can see; I have to think about what I can't see and what's over there. And you had to really keep like two the way two worlds were linked together in your head. So it was complicated, and you know, it took a lot of kind of like juggling to keep that all fresh and where it needed to be in your brain. Okay, but that was part of the enjoyment of it. But yeah, it really came down to how obvious the nature of the fetch quest is and the size and scope of it. Right. Because the the Metroid Prime thing where you have to get those like pieces to open a door at the end, that runs the risk of annoying the player, 
because it's like, God, this is just extra time to keep me from moving into the next place. Mm -hmm. But you can at least see what the designer perspective of that decision was, even if you personally disagree with it, where it's like, this game is about exploration. It's not about just going into rooms and shooting things. Yes. You have to go and explore. And if you've been seeing these things so far, that means you're a pretty good explorer. Let's wrap this thing up. Let's see how really good of an explorer you are if you can find like the last view you need. That's the thing. I hope. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And then like you say with two, I I cannot see what the mechanical purpose that would serve other than running, running the clock on how long the game is. It's just padding. It's just padding. In the first one, I feel like if you don't have most of those pieces, by the time the end is rolled around, you have been extremely incurious about the world that you have been going through. And you are probably also about to get your ass kicked by Ridley. Mm -hmm. You need to explore. It's, that's how this works. You really need to look around. You need to get those missiles. You need to get those uh, those energy packs for your health. Yeah. If you're looking for all that stuff, you're going to find these pieces. Mm-hmm. And the hints for where they are are right there in the first couple hours in the game because you're returning them to those pedestals. And each of the pedestals has a hint about where it is in the world. You see all those hints. They get recorded to your logbook. And all of a sudden, you're out and about. And you're like, hey, didn't I read about a place that looks like this? And then you look and you figure it out and you get it. And then you go, hey, those all are telling me about a thing I need to collect. I don't know what they're for yet, but I'm probably going to need them. Hmm. So you're able to do that. Whereas Metroid Metroid Prime 2 has you get three quarters of the way through the game. Like you, you think you are about to fight the final bosses. And essentially the game goes, oh, yeah, the final bosses are behind this gate. But you can't open it until you get all these things we are just telling you about now. I'm at the end. Let me see the end. Mm-hmm. And the game goes, no, you can't, you know, we've put up this like invisible, this invisible wall until you find the key for it, which is also invisible. You can't get in. And it's certainly not an Echoes exclusive problem. This was like, were you a video game release between 2003 and 2006? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Super Mario Sunshine is another example. <laughs> Just everything, everything in that time period had that like. It's like I blame I blame reviewers for a lot of this stuff for always being like, ooh, game's only this long. Ooh, game doesn't have multiplayer. Ooh, you know this. Right. So Echoes 2, I mean, Echoes has multiplayer. And actually, the multiplayer is fun because it feels different than other multiplayer since you are um, controlling a character who's not primarily a sh- like a, a, a shooter. They just happen to have the arm cannon, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like different, interesting. The way the mechanics work is different from other shooters. So like that part, they succeeded. But then in like the thing that's clearly padding, it's clearly padding. Right. And it's just it's just a shame because it really without that, it is at least as good as Prime. Right. Um, I think divisive for a lot of people. I don't think it's as obviously as good as Prime because it is very difficult. Mm-hmm. But um, it, to a point where some people think it is unfairly difficult in the same way people said Dread is like unfairly difficult. And I'm like hit me harder echoes you know like this is amazing and there's some really cool design stuff in there too like there's an entire boss fight that happens with you in the morph ball oh man that sounds really cool it's so cool you're like in a wall going around like solving this puzzle in the morph ball while you're trying to trap this guy with bombs oh i love a good set piece it's so good and it's not even the only morph ball boss fight but this is like the only like major boss that you fight in the morph ball mm-hmm. it's it's the morph balls game it really is like it's used in prime and it's used very well in prime but it feels like they had so much more confidence in what they could do with that thing in a 3d space for mm-hmm. this game and they deployed so much of it and it's 
it's wonderful. Right. So it's all those things that make it like, wow, this, this is exceeding the original, which was one of the best games ever. And then it didn't, you know, and I still ranked it 36. (laughs) (laughs) So that should tell you how strong the rest of it is when I'm so furious about the other thing. Unfortunately to Mark, it's only one of the best games of all time instead of the best game of all time. Well, that's the thing. It's one of Nintendo's best games. I don't think it qualifies anymore for like one of the best games. Right. But there are also, you know, there's tears to this sort of thing. Oh, just a basic note about the the 101 in the first place. You know, I'd have people get on me about like, well, I think this game is better than this game. That's like five spots ahead of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm like, you know, Nintendo's released like 1300 games, right? Or 1500 games or some shit. So it's like, so we are talking about like fractions of percentage points in difference. Yeah. In these rankings when you're talking about the whole, you know. Um, My other thing is like, make your own list (laughs) you can do that nobody's stopping you that's the whole like all of content creation sorry god forbid for saying the word it's just like you listen to people because they say things in an interesting way if you are Mm -hmm. only reading the headline and not like the text you are learning nothing you're bringing your opinion to a headline you get the information of another person's opinion by actually reading their writing or listening to their show or watching their video so number 100 on the list was linked to the past which some people took as like me saying it's not great or whatever. And it's like, I'm saying this is in the top five fucking percent yeah. of everything Nintendo's ever done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, you know how many more 2D Zeldas they came out with after this? Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work that way. Like just going, uh, just because you're moving forward and adding new ideas and stuff, sometimes they backfire. And like Echoes is one of those ones where it's like, wow, this could have been better. And then it wasn't. It's not always forward progress. Every day, like 10 video games come out that are worse than a link to the past. Like, like that's, that's how tremendous a 30 year old game is. Like you're, you're, you yeah. are hyper fixating on granular, like differences in opinion, which I think is like how all of conflict happens. God knows that that's how every political movement is, is like <laughs> arguing on the 3% you disagree on, but damn, you know, like video games too. <laughs> well, you know, that's why I ended up writing like, 1500 to 3000 to 5000 words about some of these games because it was like i don't you don't don't care about where the ranking is necessarily let's let's talk about this game because it rules Mm -hmm. you know yeah um we've we've talked up uh metroid prime's praises relative to the other games Uh, i always have to ask this question because we always have to put things into perspective a little bit kill our darlings a little bit in this show what's something that you wish uh metroid prime the original did better Wish it did better because you did allude to the fact that like up to a point like Metroid Prime 2 did some stuff better. So there is like there was, you know, a growing point until there wasn't. Well, I think see the improvements from that game are more they they understood the foundation and philosophy of the first game and what worked. Sure. And kind of ratcheted it up. Um, so I would say it would have been nice if there was a little more with the morph ball in the first game. Mm hmm. Or if they had added some other elements from the 2D Metroids um, kind of earlier on. Um, like the um, like Echoes has the screw attack. It has like the wall jump and the screw attack. And I it doesn't always super work super well. Um, so I can understand why they like didn't do that while they're trying to create an entire genre. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the only thing missing from it is stuff like that, where it's like things they were confident enough to do in the second game. I don't think it's missing anything that you notice is missing. Yeah. While you're playing it. Because to your point, it's a very like the, the things that made Metroid Prime better than the other two wasn't necessarily 
like them taking something out. It's because like they avoided mistakes. Like you, you said that very, very, very well. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, there's some, there's some games from that era where I kind of wish Nintendo would change the sound by the time Twilight Princess came out. I wish they had orchestrated Zelda. Sure. And they didn't, you know, they were still using, um, God was Skyward Sword really the first orchestrated Zelda game. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Damn. Huge waste. Not a waste necessarily, but just like a huge like missed opportunity, you know? Yeah, it's not as interesting. I'm not even saying that about the quality of Skyward Sword. It's like that soundtrack is not one of their strongest ones. Mm. It's got some it's got some good songs on it, but I think they're good because they're orchestrated. If that makes any interesting, sense, because like I have like the 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 central hub music from Skyward Sword in my head all the time, just because it's like the platonic ideal of like town music. But like I get your point. Yeah, I get your general point. Yeah, I, yeah. I understand like it's not as sweeping as uh, ocarina of time or majora's mask is with its music yeah and i I think so like twilight princess you can really tell when they if you've ever listened to the uh symphony uh orchestra medley for twilight princess it makes me even more annoyed that they had the sound quality they did that they did the sound the way they did yeah the the midi sounds yeah because it's like listen to what you you came up with this giant sweeping orchestral arrangements like that is just the music played with the way it should have been the first time. Uh, I, I even feel like Metro Prime's not missing any of that because, like, we talked about the the music's more in the background and just like kind of basic mood setting mm-hmm. for what's going on. And all the music that's there is really lovely or does exactly what it's supposed to do. So it like that works so well for the kind of sound that the GameCube could do. So yeah, the only the only real thing I guess I wish is it would be nice if there was more morph ball. But hey. We do have echoes. Sure. I just have that three hour section. I'm going to gripe about every time I play it for sure. And I have a couple of like notes about like some things that kind of bugs me on this playthrough. And I think that you can, maybe you can color it in or just say, maybe you overlooked it, but a lot of the things that could be perceived as a weakness in Metroid prime actually come across as strengths in hindsight. You can say things like, Oh, the combat in Metroid prime. Is not very good? But it's not bad. First of all. And two, like it emphasizes the fact that this is an exploration game and not a shooter game. You can generally avoid conflict. Like there are like moments where you have to fight an enemy, like in a like a boss or mini boss, or like the first time you encounter like a stronger enemy, it's probably going to be required of you. But you never have to like go into a room a second time and like get stuck in there. You 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 can avoid so much of the combat, and that's something you can learn very quickly when you have to go back and fight like the different colored pirates that can only be destroyed by one beam. Like, don't, you don't have to brute force your way through this game whatsoever. Some things that seem like a weakness are actually a strength, is what I'm trying to say. Those enemies are obstacles. They're not adversaries. So, like, that was the hard thing I was, like, coming up with. Like, what is an actual issue with this game? So, when I come to you with this issue, you know, let me qualify this by saying another huge strength <laughs> of the game is the first-person perspective and its relationship with the exploration of the world. The brilliance of this game is so very much rooted in the first-person perspective and how immersive it is to see everything through Samus's visor. With that being said, I don't like the X-ray visor very much. What uh, what is it about the X-ray visor you don't like? I don't like the way that it looks. <laughs> it is it is too it is too much of like the color contrast, uh, like because like the thing is like you get it, and the first thing you have to do you think of if you're a person like me who like does very well in Metroidvanias because you're obsessed with like looking in every corner of the room. 
I have to walk through every room and I have to like at least give it like one old 360 with that color filter and make sure I didn't miss anything because like you uh, see very quickly like okay yeah there's floating platforms over this ravine that I arrived at earlier and I have to jump into it and that like and this is a personal thing maybe like I'm not saying like it's the game's fault but just like that color filter every time I look at it it almost like starts to hurt after I look at it for a few through it for a few seconds it's a good thing that like when you're in the overworld and things are so cloudy and rainy for the most part, or the sun is obscured by uh, decaying buildings, you know, mm-hmm. creating kind of like shadowy, darker areas. It's probably good that the game looks like that, not just for hiding some of the textures that may have aged, but also so you don't have, you don't go from super bright lit to that x-ray visor. Mm-hmm. And just like, it's like coming back from a, um, it's like when you read a website page where the whole background's black and the text is white, and then you go to a white background page with black text, and you can't see for like two minutes. Yeah, it's <laughs> so it, it, yeah, it could have been worse. It's not like the night vision goggle problem so much. It's like the filter is so like overpowering that mm-hmm. even when I do find something that may be like a a secret, it just I can barely perceive it, and huh. like I don't know, maybe I'm just like playing the game wrong or like using the filter wrong but like my experience with the x-ray thing was just like 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 i don't know like i have a hard time articulating it but i wonder if you found like the one thing that doesn't hold up on an hd set which is like, what? close up like the like whatever the design whatever they use to make the x-ray visor maybe maybe it just doesn't it's like one of the things that does not look as good on more modern monitors it's not impossible. Maybe I'll have to like, I, can you describe like what that like feature is? Well, I mean, it was designed for different TV sets. Okay. CRTs are darker, for instance, and everything was drawn in such a way as to emphasize how those, those screens looked. So I wonder if there's a little bit of muddiness that comes from bringing something that was designed for a CRT to an HD set. Maybe. Yeah. And I wonder if something like that, that is, uh, you know, it's purposely changing the way your vision works and making you only see like very specific things. Mm-hmm. If the filter's just like not appearing in the way that it should be. Yeah, maybe I, 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 I'm willing to like, just say like, maybe it's just like a problem with how, like I was using the visor. Like I, I'm willing to, <laughs> I'm willing to say like, it's half my fault at the very least, but like, I don't mind how it's technically used in practice. Like, the b- boss you have to fight using the x-ray visor, that's a very smart implementation of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just, like, I get really self-conscious about using something to find as many things as possible. So I'm using that x-ray <laughs> visor probably more than the game expects me to. <laughs> that might be it, too. Yeah. I think of um, my wife playing Dragon Age Inquisition. She has to check everything, everywhere, every corner, you know? And those maps are so big and it's just like i don't i don't know if you need to do all of that i don't know if you need to go out to all those places and pick up every single thing your inventory is only so big and it's just like nope i need to know i need to know i need to go everywhere <laughs> so i think of that where it's like you accidentally make something unenjoyable for like a specific type of player yeah but it's also just kind of like i i play metroidvania games i know about the the secrets let's see what you're hiding from me oh nothing never mind <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just smarter than no, (laughs) no, but like, okay. If I have to come with like one, like structural issue with the game. And again, this is just a personal taste thing. Um, If any, like I saw, I was reading some complaints because I want to like compare 
what I had against like what the zeitgeist was saying or like what people mm -hmm. were saying on internet forums throughout the years. I did see one common complaint uh, from like whether it was like a Reddit thread from two years ago or like a GameFAQs thread from like the, the time, the year the game came out. And that is that people did not care for the phase on mines. Now, I did not have an issue with the phase on mines. It was one of the two times in this game that I did die was like in those mines when I was fighting the uh, boss at the very bottom of those mines. Mm -hmm. But it, I did not seem to have the problem that people had with the uh, the level design of the mines where it's like you basically like play through an hour uh, that first time you're down there before you get to the save point. So if you die, you lose the entire progress of up to that point. So that is a complaint that people have. I never had that problem personally. Maybe like I just had like more health than people generally have at that point. Maybe the mouse and keyboard controls just made the shooting more manageable for me or maybe i just like got a better sense of what how to handle waves of enemies than other people but it did not seem to be the issue for me that other people did have the issue i did have was more just like oh god i have to go through magmore caverns again and it's just like this one long straight line and you always have to kind of go through like one end of it to the other and it's the only way you can get into fendrana drifts for the most part i think for like 90 percent of the game if not the entire game it's just like it's like a house that's built that like you have to go through the basement to go through the front door when i like <laughs> look at like the entire layout of the world maybe I, maybe i'm just like taking the wrong like visual approach to it but like i just remember like magmore is not as sophisticated as the rest of this uh world is magmore is kind of like a bunch of connective tissue mm -hmm. for the rest of it yeah um and it you know it has its secrets yeah, it does. It's other pathways, but it's, yeah, it's, they're it's, more it's, vertical secrets, though. It's like more like you can finally reach the yeah, ceiling yeah, yeah. of a room versus like either something yeah. in the yeah. But for the most part, yeah, you're just kind of traversing it like on your way to somewhere else. I don't remember having an issue in the phase on mines either. So I feel like to those people on those boards, I have to say the same thing that I say to people about dread, which is pay more attention to your surroundings, man. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really struggle too much with the, the, the difficulty in Dread. Like, I had, like, a couple points where I got stuck navigation-wise, mm -hmm. but, like, I didn't have to resort to a guide. I just sort of, like, <laughs> did the whole, like, well, hold on. Let me scan a room again. Yeah. But and Dread, I think, is a lot more generous with hints than uh, a lot of games of the, the, the genre are. But, yeah, you know, I'm not, I promise you guys I'm not bragging about the fact that the, the phase on mines weren't difficult for me. <laughs> I'm I just am. like finding a different thing to complain about because I think the phase on mines is like one of the better like designed in terms of like presentation and mm -hmm. like how everything looks but I can understand if like not being able to save uh, for a full hour of the game can be a problem well you know it's a very dangerous place to be in mm -hmm. and I feel like you gotta be a little more careful it is the closest <laughs> like, yeah like it's the closest the game gets to like just straight horror at a point yeah that's that's the very, 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 very small complaint I have about the game. Um, <laughs> the x-ray hurts, and sometimes Magmore can, like, be a little bit of a pain to backtrack through. But, like, again, like, at least every time I'm going back through, I have an upgrade and I can do my little sweep. All right. I think I have... Those are the general questions I had about Metroid Prime. Is there anything, like, that you love about the game that we don't didn't have the opportunity to discuss? Um, you know, I talked about the way the sound works. Yes. I do think the soundtrack is phenomenal. Oh. You know, it's a mix of arrangements of classic Metroid songs. Mm -hmm. um, 
like the Magmore Caverns theme is not original to to Prime. Mm-mm. That sound of it is, you know, that arrangement with those the drums and the the chorus like that definitely sounds different in Prime. No, yeah, that's like uh, Yamamoto re- recycling some stuff from uh, Super Metroid. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's wonderfully done. Um, oh, yeah, you know the the Fendranath drifts theme when it first opens up on Fendrana and you're seeing all that the just snow capped area. And that just beautiful, like slow starting song starts. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's one of the best moments in like in in the whole game, in the whole uh, Prime's subseries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music really doesn't have it's it's not in the in the driver's seat in the way it is in um, in uh, Super Metroid and in the two D games. And I do think that's a, an intentional design decision in a lot of ways, where the I think of uh, East, the way music works in East a lot. It's meant to compel you forward and mirror your movements and push you and push you and push you and kind of just keep you moving, mm-hmm. which is very much how Super Metroid works. You know, you're you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going. But we've talked about how in Prime, it's it's more contemplative a lot of the time. I think having the, the music pushed to the background works with that in terms of like the mood setting and like the slowing things down. It does make it so I think for some people it might be harder to for those songs to be memorable in the same way. You know, they, they range from uh, brilliant to like Fendrana to just extremely workmanlike getting the job they, they were written to do done. And it's, it's kind of a shame. Like I love um, Metroid Metal. Mm-hmm. This, this uh, cover band that plays does like metal arrangements of a lot of Metroid songs. They don't do a lot from Prime. Yeah, it's more uh, atmospheric stuff. It's uh, yeah, like, exactly. It's like Breath of the Wild. Like it's a lot more low key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it's lo-fi beats to like find holes in walls too. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe people don't appreciate it as much as they should because it's not. It's not something you necessarily just throw like the soundtrack on for to listen to. Sure, but like to that point, it does make those like huge moments just so much more tremendous. Like this, yeah, the yeah. moment where you land on Talon Four for the first time, and like you hear like the classic Metroid theme playing as you are like taking your opening steps through the overworld, mm-hmm. and like it's just like one of those like seat levitating moments. It's like hearing like the the the. the the theme to Jurassic Park for the first time. Like it, that's, that's the same like effect that that gave me. And maybe it's just because out of recognition, cause I played the other Metroid games before, but I was just like that swell of music. Mm-hmm. is just so goddamn good. It's great. And it, you know, it, it doesn't rely entirely on that kind of like prior knowledge Mm-mm. of the sound either. Cause it, it segues right from that big swell that you talked about to the sound of the rain and the very low key music of the Talon overworld. And it really does set the mood for like, okay, so it's like, hey, that's what Metroid sounded like before, and this is what Metroid's going to sound like now. And it's a, it's a really great transitional moment. It um, is. But the, the sound design and the, the music are all really brilliantly implemented. And uh, yeah, I just feel like it kind of gets left behind sometimes how, how good the music is. It's tastefully implemented because this is going to be one of the longer Metroid games, and you don't need that like constant barrage of like a a sweeping score in your ear the entire time like people who complain about the fact that there's not really like big musical moments in breath of the wild are you know completely overlooking the fact that they're going to be playing that game for at least 100 hours if you want to get everything done and can you imagine hearing the hyrule field theme as much as i love it for like 80 hours and i think that they also design games in a way that like other people in the room who aren't playing the game can like respect 
<laughs> so it's kind of like maybe you can stand listening to a theme for 80 hours at a time but can your partner in the room who's reading a book do that or your if you're a kid you have a father who's just like hanging out in the other room he's absolutely going to go insane hearing the same song 50 times <laughs> yeah I, I read this thing once about how um uh, the reason you hear footsteps the way you do in a lot of Japanese games is because they said there's a lot of apartment living and people don't have their TV up super, super loud. So they want to make sure that the footsteps can be heard, even if you have to have like your volume low. You reminded me of that, you know, saying like someone's, tr- someone's trying to read and the Hyrule Field theme is just playing and playing and playing and playing instead of getting, you know, very like tastefully done piano that segues into the Dragon Roost Island uh, arrangement. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And then like cycles right back out of that to wherever else you're going. And that's just stuff that makes the world feel alive. And I think that, yeah. that, that it all like builds to something like sound design and the implementation of music within that is such an underrated art. And mm-hmm. God, when things do it beautifully, uh, it's it's good stuff. Uh, and Nintendo is almost always incredible at it. I cannot think of a moment where like the sound design was merely mediocre. It's They do really impressive work. I mean, they you know, just think, think of how many of the composers you know from Nintendo. Like, mm-hmm. On a, like you actually know their full names. Yeah, a, a guy so integral to chiptune music that his that's his nickname. Yeah. Um. So I think that's just about everything I have for notes on Metroid Prime. It was awesome talking about this game with you. Uh. Before we get out of here, though, is there anything from Metroid Prime Four that you want that you know you maybe this game or the other games didn't offer, or would you just sort of want Metroid Prime Four to be basically metroid prime 2 in a way of like an iteration on like the established stuff from the first metroid prime yeah i think they went too far afield in three you know like i said it's it's still great you know it ranked in that top 101 it's still very enjoyable to play but it felt less like metroid than the others you know one of the real great strengths of metroid prime is how much it still felt like it belonged in as a metroid game even with the wild revisions to the formula on a number of levels Mm-hmm. and corruption didn't really do that still a lot of fun the first time i played it i played it and basically i finished it in like two days i just played it and played it and thought it was great you know but um it's one of those things like on further reflection i'm like yeah no that was great but <laughs> <laughs> now that i've had like time to reflect this is worse this is worse i prefer this i like this it's yeah like that so f- i i hope four is kind of following up on yeah like you said like metroid prime 2's kind of philosophy of like what if the first game, but more of it, um, what if it, you know, but what if it was bigger instead of just completely becoming something else? I don't know how likely that is. I would say we're probably more likely to get another three that maybe correct some of those missteps, but I don't know. We'll see, you know, retro has had a lot of time. There's a lot of new people there. They've had a lot of time to think about what they would have done differently. I'm sure. Yeah. The ones who are still there. Sure, Nintendo has their thoughts too. Sure. Um, I mean, they went to Namco, which says something, but they also went to Retro again, which says something else. So yeah, I, I kind of I hope it's kind of building off of two. Just we've moved out of that Fetch Quest era, so that's good. You know, that's kind of a a potential L taken off the table right there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd like to get back to the design elements and the exploration that existed in the first two games. And uh, if they're gonna have combat be such a focus, it needs to be kind of more justified Mm -hmm. because combat was really, you know, you talked about um, how you didn't really need to fight anyone, if anyone, except for like in the first time through 
some some spaces in the first prime. It's very much the key to the door in a lot of places in corruption. Uh-huh. It's like let's clear out the room. Let's right. clear out this room. Let's clear out that room. And it just that's like with that feeling you get when like oh man this Metroid this not not Metroid this Zelda dungeon is kind of spinning its wheels if the puzzle is just beating the enemies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's our coverage here on Metroid Prime. Before we go, though, I do want to give you the space to give some recommendations. Uh, so what media would you recommend to listeners based on today's discussion? And it you don't have to limit yourself strictly to video games. What media? Yeah, like it could be a book, a film, show, music, so on. <laughs> Related to today's thing? Yeah. And if it helps you, I can like give my recommendation real quick and then we can circle back to you. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you do yours? I just need a second. All right, absolutely. So... My, I have only, I only have one recommendation today because I could recommend a bunch of different Metroidvanias you can play, right? But I think the beauty of Metroid Prime is how singular it feels. So instead, I'm going to sort of go back to the influence on the Metroid franchise, specifically the Alien franchise. So, oh, God damn it. Yeah. The first <laughs> Alien film was a tremendous influence on the first Metroid game, both visually and thematically. So much so that the character Ridley, the, the antagonist of the Metroid franchise was named after the director of the first film, Ridley Scott. But for Metroid Prime specifically, I want to recommend the sequel Aliens directed by James Cameron. That's a movie about like a character that Ripley from Alien going through the physical, emotional and mental trauma from that first movie and then is asked by her employers to return to the scene of the trauma with a bunch of space Marines to investigate the area that's now been terraformed and colonized, which thematically ties back into Metroid Prime because these are both stories of people disregarding the lives of others in pursuit of power. In Aliens, it's very much like, oh yeah, this new colony was wiped out by something and you told us there was an alien over here, but like we're going anyway because we could use the alien for uh, a bioweapon. And in you know the case of Metroid Prime, it's very much like, yeah, there's a there's this ancient evil uh, meteor that wiped out all life on the planet slowly and painfully. What if we could sell that? So it's <laughs> um, it's it, it, it's it's very much in the same vein. Like it is so aliens, it hurts, and like not in like a painful way, but it's just like goddamn, I really just go want to watch aliens again. And yeah, I'll admit I'm on a Cameron kick. Last episode, I recommended Avatar Two: The Way of Water, but. Um, <laughs> Look, look, it, it's a great movie. Uh, it's it's foundational to Metroid as a franchise. And I know it's basically hacked to make the comparison at this point. But like, it, I can't ignore how aliens this all is. My God damn it was because that is where I was trending with my own. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it's OK. It's not it's not because I disagree or because I thought it was hack or anything. It was me going like, well, I could talk about the connection with the alien. Oh, shit. Yeah, no. It, yeah, but <laughs> Why did I let him go first? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned it earlier, but uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. There's not a lot of dialogue in there. You really have to, you're really kind of putting yourselves in the shoes of the people in the movie. Not that it's like first person or anything, but you really are trying to connect with what they're doing and seeing and thinking and feeling because of that lack of dialogue. You know, you need to create that connection with them. It's really quiet and contemplative a lot of the time, but it has these big moments and it uses sound in such an important way. So there's not a direct tie-in to Metroid by any means, but I do I do think about 2001 a lot mm-hmm. when I when I play 
Metroid Prime or when I'm opining on Metroid Prime. No, no, that's a perfect example. And that's exactly the kind of recommendations I look look for. I like I like it when something feels a little sweaty, but you can like draw a direct line of comparison to it. And that sound design piece is so good. So yeah, that's a that's a great recommendation. Did you? And I'm not recommending this sincerely because it, it, I like it more as like a joke than like a legitimate recommendation. But did you see that? Uh, it was like a tweet from this person uh, at Above Up last like Christmas 2021. If you think about it, Die Hard is a Metroidvania movie. As John McClane kills more of the terrorists and attains their equipment, uh, he gets access to larger parts of the building. <laughs> uh, eventually, everyone does become extremely terrified of him, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine like, if you just saw a note that's like, now she has a machine gun? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much what they do. <laughs> Yeah, like there's like the one where it's like y'all can't take days off until this Samus thing is figured out. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I genuinely love the thing where they're like, we have to give the scientists guns, and sure, they don't know how to use them, but it will buy us some time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, wow, you people are vicious. Yeah, that's aliens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's more or less everything I have today. Um, Mark, thank you so much for talking about this game and giving me a reason to play it because I had this game for years and I just never got around to actually putting it in my Wii and playing it. So this is just a great part of doing the show is that I finally get to play tremendous games. This is a new favorite of mine. Uh, Please, please, before you go, promote the hell out of yourself. (laughs) I wish you had seen my face light up when you said you hadn't played it before and how much you enjoyed it when you played it because... I have been evangelizing this game for decades, you know, decades. Oh, I love this game so much. You got my ass. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. What do I do with my time? Uh, So retroxp.substack.com. I write two to three newsletters a week there. I try and do about 10 a month, sometimes a little more. I cover, you know, games that are at least 10 years old. Um, Sometimes they're ones you know. Sometimes I decide to only do things that came out in Japan that nobody played that have recent unofficial translations. Sometimes I'll write about a game that sold, we know just like literally thousands of copies stuff. That's not available that I wish was available stuff. That's brand new to me. And sometimes I just spotlight something that, you know, I've played a million times. I have no reason to write about it other than like, Hey, I just played that again. Cause it's good. I write twice a month for paste magazine, often with a kind of a retro focus. I make lists there sometimes, but I make sure that they're, um, you know, how a lot of people do lists where it's just like, here's a game and like a sentence on it. Mm-hmm. I never do that. I write, I write probably more than I need to, but it's, I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to give you something else, something, something extra, something actually push you towards the game more than just a name. And, uh, I mentioned my baseball writing is, uh, it's at marknormandon.com. Uh, I've had that newsletter since January, 2019, and I have not named it and I never will. <laughs> so you can sign up there's a newsletter the newsletter form is on tiny letters uh tiny letter tiny letter and uh yeah you can just find that at my wordpress blog uh marknormandon.com and uh i edit and write for baseball prospectus um i edit nightly and i write a couple features a month there yeah uh geez what else do i do work everything else is kind of one-offs i show up in defector sometimes writing about video games sometimes uh and um State of the industry, actually, with video games. What I complain about, the digital future ruining everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read about more baseball there than anything. But hey, if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you also like complaining about uh, 
the ultra rich and i do that all the time when i write about sports so absolutely we love video games and we're super cynical about the upper class uh mark normandon i'll have links to all your stuff in the description of this episode if you like baseball if you like video games check out his stuff thank you again mark for being on the show and thank you so much for listening to this episode of select and start once again i'm your host editor and promoter Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Metroid Prime or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash If you pledge at least $1 a month, you'll get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Mark's. All right, I think that's it. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more at moonshotpods.com.